stories by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good afternoon, depending on what time you're listening, what time you've downloaded this podcast, wherever you are in the world. Morris here with another episode of Love That Album and making a very welcome return to the show. To co-host this episode with me is my good friend Michael Persh from Adelaide, host of the Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide podcast. Good evening, Michael. Hi, Morris. How you going, mate? I'm in good health. How's yourself? Very well. Lovely to be back again. I had a ball when we did uh, the Tubes album, so looking forward to doing another one. I We had considerably more downloads of that episode than I envisaged that we would, so uh, there are still a bunch of Tubes fans out there, I'm pleased to say. Well, I, I sent I sent uh, an email to um, the both of the guys that I mentioned in the show, to Perry Prince and to uh, to Fee Wabel. Hope, Hopefully might open a door for an interview, but I haven't heard anything back, so oh. fingers crossed. I will we'll hope. You know, any, any Tubes fans out there, you know, cross fingers, uh, dig the karma, whatever it is. Um, but uh, tonight, um, I, I was going to say a, a, a band of a very different type, but maybe not so much. Um, we're going to talk about Split Ends, in particular their album True Colours, and both bands, I guess, shared a, a love of theatricality, uh, maybe not the same subject matter in their lyrics but um certainly uh, both bands liked a, a a sense of of uh, maybe not the absurd but but uh that they like to put on a show certainly did yes mm. yes a split end show if anyone if anyone well i guess you don't have to be that old because they've reformed a few times so they, have. they have a split ends concert is a wonderful thing mm. all right well before we uh, start talking about split ends um uh, let's let's just quickly go over. So, what have you been listening to of late? Um, st- strangely enough, I I pulled out my old copy of "Wish You Were Here" this week. Okay, which, which is my favourite Pink Floyd album. Yes, and and as we spoke before we went on air, I, I went and saw a, a band from New South Wales today um, from Sydney called Sticky Fingers, and and they're a great reggae band, and they finished their their set with a uh, a very reggaefied version of Time. From oh wow. And it was fantastic. So I, I was quite chuffed that now, they uh, they picked such a strange tune to do. But um, now I remember listening to your um, podcast a few weeks back, and you played a, a track from Sticky Fingers, and it wasn't in the least bit reggae. It sounded more like it could have been something that came off the Nuggets box set. Yeah, very very interesting band. I, I haven't seen them live until today, mm. and 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 live they are very much uh, an electric reggae band, and the. Uh, the, the EP that, that I got hold of, hold of when I spoke to the guys uh, last week was very acoustic, very, um, yeah, the the band was mixed way back and it was, yeah, very different. I, I took my, my family came with me today because it was an afternoon gig and we all listened to the CD on the way home and, and all said, you know, this is so much different to the band we saw today. So interesting stuff, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. 
Um, so what else have you been uh, digging on? Well, well, as I said, wish you were here. I just, I just really sort of hit me again. What a great album it is, and and um, I guess, I guess, you know, people, people, including myself, we were hammered with Dark Side of the Moon and the Wall, and and they're great records. But I think Wish You Were Here is is maybe a bit overlooked. But you know, listening to it again, the only, the only thing I think it misses is is Alan Parsons' touch. Oh, yeah. But um, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, but also, I got uh, I got my hands on the new Paul McCartney album this week. Oh, now what what's the story with that? Has he gone and done the standards thing? What, yeah, what's he doing? There's, there's some really strange old tunes in there that are like you know old vaudeville tunes, which which I know he's you know the I think I think all the Beatles sort of grew up with that stuff, and 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 a lot's been written that it's sort of in the vein of what Rod Stewart's been doing with the. You know the American classic sort of stuff, but it's yeah. yeah, a very weird mixture of tunes. There's there's a couple of things on there. There's a tune on there called My Valentine, which which I really like. It's but I, I guess I, what I like about the album is that it's it's stripped back. It's it's um, the production is quite um, is quite sparse. Although there's you know there's, as most Paul McCartney albums, there's some great players on there, and and Eric Clapton's on there, and um, uh, Stevie Wonder, but and the backing band is Diana Crow's band, so it's a quite a jazzy sort of band. So I, yeah, I was going to ask what the instrumentation was. So no string sections, no saccharin, so, but just a nice jazz jazz ensemble. Yeah, yeah, which which is okay. But I, you know, I, I, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I suspect you're a pretty big Beatles fan because I. No I'm correction needs. No corrections made there. I'm a. I'm, the Beatles are, my, are probably the reason I'm doing this um, podcast to begin with. They were my epiphany, and and I, so I grew up with 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 Paul McCartney in his in the Wings period, and I loved them. I mm. from I loved I loved Paul McCartney solo records up till the last Wings album, and I think from then on they've been patchy. And and this is the same. It's it's got some great moments on it, but it's got a few things on it where I think, mm, what are you doing? <laughs> that's, that's just my opinion, and. And you know, for me, back in those those early, or all the Wings albums, and even his first couple of solo albums, Ram and um, and McCartney one were just great albums. And mm. I still, you know, I still think they stand up today as as underappreciated. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this one does. And I've I've got I know you're a Ringo fan, and I've got the new one, but I haven't listened to it yet. So. Uh, look, you know, I. I... I, am, I admire the man, um, great drummer, and I know that we'll have something to say about that in the next uh, couple of months. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I, I draw the line at getting anything beyond, I think, Ringo Starr's best of, which is, I think, only half an hour long, maybe not even that. But having, having said that, if he brought his all-star band to Australia, I would be in the front row like a shot. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that'd be more of a show, you know. He'd be there doing you know, the the Beatles material, and he'd be giving his guest stars their moments in the show. It'd just be an all round fun concert, and you wouldn't have to put up with any of the um, questionable solo material that he's done. Yeah, so the McCartney one, I, yeah, I think it's make up your own mind. I, I, I liked. I, I guess I liked half of it. Okay, um, there's an album that he put out. Uh, can't remember the year, but it would be somewhere in maybe the last six, seven years called Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. And if you haven't tracked that one down, um, 
that was a real pleasant surprise because just when people, you know, had gone and written him off saying, yep, of course, his best years are well, well, well behind him. And then he comes up with an album like that where the songwriting was just top notch. Um, and he got on board, uh, I can't remember the producer, I think it might have been uh, the producer of uh, OK Computer, Radiohead's OK Computer, Nigel... Uh, I've forgotten my surname. I should be shot down in flames. What's a what's a rock fan like me not knowing stuff like that? But anyway, um, he, he got he got a producer who actually wasn't a solid McCartney or Beatles fan, and McCartney wanted just for a change someone who would not catow to him, someone who would say, "Look, I don't know or care about your heritage. I'm just here to make a great album," and it worked. It's a beautiful album. He's you know. Obviously, the uh, producers gone and said, no, nah, that song's shit. We're not going to put that one on and we're not going to overproduce this. And it, it, for, for the guy who produced OK Computer, this is a really sparse sounding record. Um, and if you haven't heard it, I urge you to go track that one down. It's about six, seven years old, I think. Yeah, I do. I do remember it, and I and I must admit I haven't listened to it for a long time. But I I do recall it's it's quite an acoustic album, isn't it? There's a lot of acoustic yeah. stuff on it. There's a there's a great song. Um, on it that uh, uh, I, I think it's oh, gosh, I forgot the name, but it, it, it sort of lyrically sounds like a it, like it would have worked in a similar vein to Eleanor Rigby. Um, but yeah, just some some gorgeous tunes on there, and uh, he's re he really found his songwriting muse. I haven't listened to it, but there's a the album that came, I think, just after that called. Uh, full from memory or something like that. There's a picture of McCartney sitting in a um, chair, and I, I hear that one's supposed to be uh, not too bad on the songwriting front either. Yep. And and having said that, I, did you see McCartney when he came to Australia last time? It was uh, it was a religious experience. Uh, yes. In fact, actually, uh, that, that was uh, a month after I got married, and and I, I made sure that the wedding was uh, well <laughs> before that. The the honeymoon or nothing would interfere with. Uh, going to see McCartney on the MCG. And I think he impressed a lot of people by um, saying, well, it's quite an honour to be uh, performing here on the MCG. This is hallowed turf. I know this is not meant for just any old pop star. So um, I, I, I think people who revered the MCG as a sporting institution and not the place for um, pop stars, you know, sort of said, all right, you know, a couple of points to him for recognising that he shouldn't actually be there. But, uh, yeah, that, I did indeed go to see him. For, for what was, I think, the... Uh, princely sum then of $53 a ticket or something like that. Um, you know, nowadays, $53 wouldn't even get you like you know, the bus fare to the MCG, never mind uh, a ticket in the MCG while he's playing. Indeed. And, and I, did bring, I did read a review in the last couple of weeks of, uh, of some shows he's doing in, in Europe. And he's still, you know, he's playing three-hour shows still. Mm. Oh, it's just fantastic. It well, really. So... For, for all the uh, questionability of him as a um, as a songwriter, and it's been you know stop start over the years, but I, I really think you'd have to be pretty foolhardy to uh, knock his abilities as a as a performer as a musician. I mean, I've seen um, you know a number of bootlegs and a number of official uh, video DVDs of, of him performing, and, and really the man still knows how to put on a great show. In fact, I was just thinking the other way. I've got a a show that he recorded in Liverpool maybe about four or five years ago. And he had on, as a special guest um, Dave Grohl come on to play both guitar and drums on about two or three songs. 
and you couldn't wipe the smile off Grohl's face. He just had that that grin that said, I can't believe it. I'm paid to do this. I'm on stage with Paul McCartney. I'm playing band on the run. I'm playing back in the USSR. My God, I can't believe I'm here. And, and he, he can still inspire that. Um, in uh, McCartney can still inspire that in the, the modern musicians. Cool, very cool. And a nice little tie-up with their subject tonight. Because, and I'm, I should have done my homework. I think it's pressed to play that, that Eddie Rayner actually played some keys on. Oh, did he? Okay. Yes, yes. Well, I've got... You may have listeners write in and tell you that's incorrect, and I, I'm not 100% sure that, that was the album. There was one. I remember, you know, I, that wasn't an album I particularly got into, but I do remember there was one song um, which had, I think, uh, something of a super group of uh, you know, Phil Collins on drums, McCartney on bass, uh, Pete Townsend on guitar, and I, maybe it was Eddie Rayner on keyboards, I don't know, but uh, something of a... Uh, a super group, no ordinary session musicians on that. It, it was, it was, and I can't even remember the guy's name. Um, whoever produced that album was also a produced produced a couple of Split Ends albums. So I think that was a tie-up with those guys. Okay. Um, so anything else that um, you've been listening to that's uh, really tickled your ivories, tinkled your? No, ivories? that's that's about it. Uh, okay. For the like I said, it was it was a bit of fun to go back and and have a Pink Floyd moment during mm. the. Weekend. I wish I had more time to sit down with a pair of headphones and, mm. and turn off the world and listen to an album, but it doesn't happen as often as I would like. Well, that's, that's the beauty of having, uh, having the iPod and, and uh, long train trips into the city and out of the city. Uh, find that's, where I, that's where I get to listen to a lot of my music, either that or you know, maybe late at night might go into the, uh, into the front room where the stereo is and, and listen to something. So um, there's, you know, I make that my priority. I, I sort of wish I was watching more films, but, you know, I've got to make the choice. It's coming down to the music for the moment. Um, so, okay, well, a few albums I've been listening to of late. Um, I picked up a couple of albums a week ago, uh, secondhand. I couldn't believe it. But um, both were albums that I... Uh, in particular, well, sorry, the first one in particular I'd really gotten into years ago, but for some reason never had my own copy. Is uh, by a group out of New York called The Fountains of Wayne. Um, featuring uh, two great songwriters, Chris Collingwood and Adam Schlesinger. Um, now, Adam Schlesinger, in particular, I think of note, he'd gone and written the uh, theme song for the Tom Hanks movie, uh, That Thing You Do, which I thought every other song in the film was a, you know, a little bit poxy. I think Tom Hanks might have had something to do with writing those songs. But um, uh, Adam Schlesinger is a man who truly has an ear for a great pop tune. And uh, that thing you do, I think the big argument was that that song played way too much in the film. But I've heard that song hundreds of times and I don't think I'm sick of it. It's just a, it's a great song. And really what, what I think is such a wonderful little pop movie uh, came out at the time. It might sort of, uh, I might have to uh, do a, an analysis of it on the show at some stage. Um, but yeah, so anyway, The Fountains of Wayne, which Adam Schlesinger uh, came from... Um, they made some great pop albums in the 90s, you know, sort of going against the grain of, um, uh, I, I guess, all the um, Nirvanas and, and uh, Pearl Jams, the, the grunge uh, groups of the, of the period. And here was this band that was just making these great power pop albums. Um, so, yeah, I, I got um, uh, their first two albums, but in particular the first one, the self-titled uh, Fountains of Wayne. It's just some great tunes on that. Uh, sink to the bottom with you, uh, and um, our lovely 
uh, a song on it called um, uh, Sick Day, um, which I, I don't think I want to talk too much more about that album because I think that's going to be an album which I'm going to um, uh, cover on a future Love That Album episode. There's just so many great pop songs on that. Um, uh, another album which uh, I've been listening to a bit of late, never too far away from the CD play, and I think I might have to cover this one at some stage as well, is by Ben Folds 5, the unauthorised biography of Reinhold Mesner. Um, now, I, I don't know, are you much of a Folds fan? That's a, that's a great album. I I I like your stuff, but I, I'm I'm certainly not an aficionado by any any stretch of the imagination. But I should be because he uh, he spends a lot of time living here in Adelaide. I was I was going to say, did you ever see him walk in the streets of Adelaide? No, but he but he does pop up, you know, on, on the radio and and you know on local stuff mm. very often. Mm. Um, so the yeah, unauthorized biography of Reinhold Mesner that was uh, quite a departure from. The album that sort of really broke it for them, whatever and ever, are men. Um, the single army led everyone to believe that the follow-up album was going to be more in that whatever and ever are men vein. But um, really, that is the only song of that ilk that, like, it could have fit on the previous album. This is a, it's a very different album. It's, um, I, I guess, something of a concept album. There's even one track that sounds very much like a Pink Floyd track, like it belonged on the dark side of the moon it's you know it has that grandeur of uh of uh pink floyd's time but um yeah as i said another album i think i'm gonna have to cover in uh, some detail on a future episode i love that album so i won't go into too much uh for a bit of fun earlier on today i went out with my family in the car and my son who's always picking uh, albums out of the collection to listen to in the car um and um he picked an album that came out about two three years ago um, I'm a huge Los Lobos fan, and I've uh, passed that uh, fanaticism on to uh, my son Max. We even flew to Sydney, uh, I think, last year uh, for the during the Sydney Festival when Los Lobos were only coming to Australia just to play the Sydney Festival. So we went there to um, purely for the purposes of uh, seeing them. So they, they'd gone and released an album about two, three years ago called Los Lobos Goes Disney. Now they'd previously done a Disney song on. Um, I think a Disney tribute album, a whole lot of pop artists uh, doing their interpretations. They'd gone and done um, I Want to Be Just Like You from The Jungle Book, but uh, they decided to go whole hog. I know that Michelle Schacht had actually done a pretty good album of uh, Disney songs in her style, but um, Lost Lobos, to my mind, goes just that little bit better than uh, Michelle Schacht does, and uh, there's some really great tunes on it. Um, I Want to Be Just Like You gets a, a second airing here. Uh, and really, their version of Hi Ho from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, done like a, a Mexican uh, carida, I think is the name. It's it's just absolutely fantastic uh, the way how they approach that. Really exciting. Uh, and yeah, they cover songs from uh, other films like Toy Story and Pinocchio and Robin Hood, and just some really great tunes on that album. Uh, finally, uh, an album that I listened to this week. Um, it, it sort of came about after listening to. Um, uh, to a podcast, uh, another podcast I listened to, um, uh, which one was it? I think it was it horror, etc. Um, think of, yeah, it might've been, oh no, no, sorry. The gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. Excuse me. Um, they were talking about a Dario Argento film called the bird with the crystal plumage. And, um, they made mention that, uh, one of the actresses in the film was, uh, Susie Kendall. Um, one of them made mention, oh, wasn't she married to, um, Dudley Moore at the time? And, that got me digging out my uh, copy of the Dudley Moore Trio album called Today, which has 
uh, song for Susie, which he'd gone and written for um, his wife at the time, Susie Kendall. Um, and you know, maybe a lot of people nowadays don't know it by name, but look it up on YouTube, Song for Susie, you'll hear it, you will know that tune. If you're certainly, well, if you're our age anyway, uh, cool, you'll know that tune. Um, but uh, yeah. It's interesting, unless you're a, a real jazz fan, I don't think the general public realise what a fantastic piano player Dudley Moore was. No, he, he look, yeah, you're right there. Um, he uh, put out quite a number of uh, jazz albums as well as the comedy stuff that he did. Um, but um, Song for Susie, I think, was a pop hit. Um, it's certainly, you know, drives, it's a fairly straightforward thing. And I remember hearing it on the radio quite a lot. Um, and, yeah, certainly the rest of the album is fairly laid back, smooth dinner jazz. But um, Song for Susie is, uh, is just a nice little pop thing. Um, uh, but, yeah, so just listening to that uh, great Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema podcast got me uh, digging out my vinyl to uh, listen to that. And of course, um, yeah, been to a few gigs over the last week, which you know, really, I hadn't haven't been to so much in 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 ages comparatively. But the one I want to talk about is um, a gig that I know you'll be very interested in, which I went to last night at the Corner Hotel in uh, Richmond. Uh, down here, went to see the Clouds. Um, ha- have they played in Adelaide yet on this tour, Michael? Yeah, they they came before Christmas and they uh, they played at the Gov. They were fantastic. Uh, okay. And I, I'm familiar with the Corner Hotel. It's a good venue. It's very yeah. similar to to where they played in Adelaide. Mm. Oh, look, I've been going there for years, and I, I, look, I remember uh, when I first started going there. I think you know when I was old enough to go there, it was a, a lot grottier, a lot grimier than it is now. They've they've uh, they've done it up a bit. I mean, you know, not so much that it sort of like looks like a a, a yuppie bar or anything like that, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just nice. It's, it's, it's a cool venue. They get a lot of fantastic acts there, but um, yeah, now the clouds, they were absolutely on fire. Um, I, I should also sort of make mention that he had two support acts. Um, one of which I really liked a, a group called the Ben Mason band. Don't know ne- anything about them. Never heard them before last night. In fact, I only caught half their set, but I really regretted not hearing the whole thing. But um, yeah, they're, they're a band which, uh, they have a knack for a good pop melody. I really, really liked them. Um, I, I'll have to look them up and hope that they do more. I don't even know uh, whether they're from Melbourne or Sydney or where they're from. But, um, but yeah, they, they put in a really good set. Uh, there was Laura Embrulia's band, which, yeah, not for me. But, um, but then the clouds came on and, um, yeah, no, they were in absolutely killer form. Um, the the musicianship was on front really it looked like they just stepped out of you know the 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 mid 1990s it looked like they hadn't spent a day apart they were just so much in fine form um and you know all the all the songs that you wanted to hear were there you know hieronymus soul eater uh you know, fox's wedding 4 p.m red serenade which has that metal heavy metal drum thrash metal drum style in it um and my simply my, my favourite of their songs, uh, the Cloud Factory. Um, they left they left me hanging till till the very end of the show, till the very end of the uh, encores for me to hear that and Hieronymus. But um, uh, yeah, it, it was absolutely a wonderful night. The, the Clouds are a band that that I thought uh, incorrectly that that you know people in Australia had forgotten, um, but since they've come back, there really has been 
you know, this this outpouring of joy to see the band back together again, and that's great. I, as I said, I really thought that uh, they were just a forgotten band. No, not at all. Uh, and I think what got the crowd very excited, I mean, towards the end, they kept on, you know, the crowd kept yelling out for songs that they wanted to hear. And, um, you know, the, the friend who I was with was uh, saying there's just so much that they still have to do. And it was almost like, um, uh, I don't remember, it was Jody or, or, or Patricia who... Um, uh, made the comment said listen uh when we're on when we come back soon we'll do a completely different set so you know we thought, wow fantastic it's not just a once around farewell wave of the hand they they you know, still have some life in them which is nice to see good stuff looking forward to seeing them next time mm. all right i think at that stage what we'll do is um have a bit of a break now i forgot to mention at the top of the show um i'm very very excited about um uh, another uh, feature that I have on this episode. Um, uh, okay, so Michael and I are going to focus on uh, the Split Ends, I guess a breakthrough album for them. I mean, they'd had moderate success in Australia and, and New Zealand and, uh, and they were, they'd had a really bad time of it in England prior to that. But uh, True Colours, uh, the really huge breakthrough album for them, uh, is the album under focus tonight. Um, now, earlier on today, I had uh, a really wonderful conversation with a fellow called Chris Burke. Now, Chris uh, is the author of a book called Something So Strong. It came out uh, maybe uh, six months after uh, Crowded House originally uh, separated in um, Sydney from that uh, famous concert that they did on the steps of the Sydney Opera House. Um, and uh, I, I looked him up and... Um, invited him to be part of this conversation now given that he's living i think in wellington and they're two hours ahead of us and we're recording this it's uh 10 o'clock uh melbourne time and you know 9 30 adelaide time i think it would have been midnight in wellington and i think he wasn't he was keen to talk but not that keen so i had to record his segment separately so uh, we're gonna have a bit of a break and uh we'll go straight into the uh chat that i had with uh chris about split ends and about the legacy of true colors and after that uh, chat, then um, uh, Michael and I will return and uh, we'll put our own spin on uh, True Colours and uh, the Split Ends legacy. So uh, stay, stay around, stay listening. Well, of course you are. You're listening to this on your iPhone or your iPod. Uh, Morris here, Michael there. You're listening to Love That Album. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings? reinventions and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. Hello, you're listening to Love That Album Podcast. Uh, the focus of today's show, as I've mentioned, is about 
True Colours, the Split Ends album of 1980. And I have on the line with me um, uh, a, a fellow from New Zealand by the name of Chris Burke. Now, Chris went and released a book in the mid-90s called Something So Strong, which was a biography of Crowded House, which I think might have come out just after their concert on um, uh, their, their farewell concert to the world. Is that right, Chris? That's right. Well, six months after Farewell to the World. So uh, yep. before we get into uh, the whole Split End side of thing, what um, uh, made you uh, interested enough to uh, uh, write the biography of Crowded House? Was there no one else doing that? Were you approached? Um, no, I approached them originally back in the 80s after the uh, big hit of Don't Dream It's Over and the second album in particular, Temple of Low Men, mm. which seemed such a strong record, although uh, um, it, it wasn't a good follow-up for them commercially. But um, I'd been following Neil Finn since the 70s, and right. uh, in, a, in a word, it was his songs that always made me want to write about him. The, the songs were so strong, and they reflected um, our similar backgrounds, small-town New Zealand, Irish Catholic background, and most importantly, a childhood that was um, completely immersed in the Beatles. Okay, so so I guess if in the Neil Finn versus Tim Finn argument, you'd definitely be swaying towards Neil. I I was then, but uh, in you know as the years go by, and you just see how strong Tim's uh, contributions have been right throughout. I think um, you know Neil's kind of eclipsed Tim, but it doesn't mean that his planet isn't shining all with, all the time. I just saw him. The other day in concert in a small club here, mm. funnily enough, um, Neil's uh, band with his wife Sharon, Pajama Club, pay, played the next day in Wellington because they, they rescheduled uh, for some reason. So you had the two Finn brothers here, one, one on a Friday and the other on a Saturday. And I tell you what, uh, it, Neil's really pushing the new area it's with the Pajama Club. You know, it's more of a, a dub thing. And, but Tim in the small club was just a dynamo. And his catalogue of songs was, it really knocked me out. I mean, I, I hadn't seen him for 10 years solo. And uh, this was just a wonderful show. There were, there were only a couple of hundred people there. And, um, you know, every song he, he did with total commitment, even the songs that we're so familiar with from True Colours and something that really is the, um, the, the key to True Colours, the thing that leads to it is Icy Red from the Frenzy album, mm -hmm. and you know, he always does that to this day with complete commitment that it always knocks you out, you know, and here's Tim, he's going to be 60 this year. Wow, I hadn't, hadn't, actually, uh, hadn't actually struck me. Um, look, uh, there was um, uh, a radio serial that was on uh, Radio New Zealand a few years back, um, which I've, I actually heard you know, someone had gone and sent me some recordings of it on CD, and I believe now you can even download it from iTunes, yep. called Enzology. And, yeah, the friend of mine made it. Oh, well, he, he's, he did a fantastic job, because uh, you mentioned IC Red, and IC Red started out life sounding very different, didn't it? Um, it did. It was, a, it was very slow from memory, but um, to put the... To start the road to True Colours, you have to go start in London, really, when the ends were at their lowest ebb about 1978. Mm. They'd uh, put out an album called Dysrhythmia, which um, was a sharpened-up version of 
the very arty split ends that uh, that we heard with mental colours and um, you know nineteen seventy seven yeah with mental notes yeah and um, the nineteen seventy seven uh, with Dysrhythmia, they they sharpened things up a little but it was still that very angular edgy arty eccentric ends you know but great songs my mistake um, and um, uh, you know you could just hear them sharpening up maybe. It reflected London at the time when the punk movement was just starting to happen. But, you know, it was still very much an art show with, with the costumes and the theatrics. And, uh, but really they couldn't get arrested at that time. And in 1978, they were broke. They were absolutely broke in London. And they rode out here to our arts council looking for help. And they got, um, $5,000 to, to stay alive, really. And, um, they, they went into a, rehearsal room in Luton and they bashed out some new songs and it, they really reflected that new energy in London of taking things down for two and a half minutes, not mucking around, plenty of hooks and um, that led the way to um, Frenzy and Icy Red. So, um, mm. you know, they, they kind of um, shrugged off that, uh, that Genesis style theatrics um, with the big epics um, Emphatically with uh, the Root and Luton tapes of yeah. 1978. Now that that saw the light of day officially, like quite a few years later, didn't it? Yeah, only really recently, comparatively, um, sometime in the 2000s. Um, but you know, I see red. Um, it was on the it was it eventually was on the Frenzy album, but that that was only after it became a hit in Australia. Um, so the, the I'm trying to keep their career going in both parts of the world. Back here, they could get um, good income from touring, and you know they were legendary for their live shows. But radio really didn't want to know here in New Zealand. Um, radio at that time was totally unsupportive of New Zealand music, and um, in Australia, they were having much better luck. And um, when Icy Red became a hit, they added it to the Frenzy album. And that really um, gave the band uh, new energy and um, new um, resources. It meant that uh, Gudinski of Mushroom Records was prepared to put in more money. Um, and but um, meanwhile, they're, they're um, st- staying afloat by coming back to New Zealand and Australia and touring. And there's a crucial concert they did in '79, which was at it was at a place rather the concert was called Nambassa and in Australian terms this is like a hippie festival at Byron Bay mm. and so it's very much uh, toe sandals and mung beans and um, the Hare Krishna people waking up everybody out of their tents at <laughs> 7 in the morning um, and just before this concert started it was a big festival there were 40,000 40, people there wow. and um um, not all of them hippies, you know, a lot of them just were rock fans and, um, just the ends set up for a rehearsal in a little country hall a couple of days before and, um, there was a fire and they suspected that it was a theft and then, then arson, uh, this fire in this country hall, uh, burnt the, burnt the hall down and all of Split End's instruments with it. But oh, they, wow. They think it was actually theft first because certain metal things in the instruments like 
Eddie Rayner's keyboard stand weren't visible when they went through the ashes. Yes. Um, but that meant that the ends had to borrow all this equipment and Eddie played a piano at that concert rather than, um, rather than his bank of keyboards. And, um, they really blew the crowd away. And that, the, the, um, word of mouth that went out after that amazing concert, um, meant that they could tour through the country and they stayed in New Zealand in 1979 and, uh, concentrated on writing songs. And of course, at this time, um, Neil Finn was emerging. He'd, after the Frenzy album, he did a couple of singles. One of them was called Things. They didn't do anything, these singles, um, but he was starting to emerge as the person who was leading this push into the three-minute pop song. And out of those songs, uh, um, it was actually in Sydney that Tim and Neil were living with their with their partners at the time in the same flat that he wrote the crucial song, I Got You. Mm. Well, just um, to kind of uh, recapture those times, it was very rare for a New Zealand song to be on New Zealand radio um, in 1979. Uh, you know, there'd be one act that would get the push on a very commercial song, and that'd be it for the year, and that person would sweep the the local music awards because they were the only song that anybody heard, uh, yep. you know, on a on a mass market commercial basis, which is what the awards are all about. Um, and in '79, the person getting the big push was John Stevens, funnily enough, who later became uh, known in Australia as a member of Noiseworks and mm, yep. um, briefly as Michael Hutchins' replacement in in excess. And you know, he did a lovely Philly song called Jezebel. That was the big hit of 1979. And, um, but then over that summer, uh, just before, just before the end of 79, they recorded the True Colors album, um, with, in Australia, in Melbourne, with this English producer called David Tickle, who was very young. He was only about 18, 19, but he'd already worked with Blondie and he had an idea of what was, um, then the cutting edge pop, these really, uh, snappy pop songs that just didn't hang around. They had a good beat and plenty of space and he, he favoured keyboards rather. He hated the piano. Um, he, he liked, um, keyboards but plenty of space so that you could, you could hear all the hooks. And he was the person that cracked it with Icy Red mm-hmm. after the, the album had already been done. But, so that's why they, they didn't put it on originally because it didn't sound like the rest of the record. But anyway, he produced the whole of True Colours and, um, he likes pumping things up so much that um, the musician's ears bleed and things are so loud. Um, but Ian, had, I mean, um, Neil had come through with this crucial song, I Got You. But, um, you know, it was the beautiful thing was it was only just one of many, many songs on the album. And Tim's contributions were just as strong. I mean, um, uh, you look at how the album starts with Shark Attack, you know, just a full frontal punch in the face, you know. And it is. Yeah. All those wonderful ballads, um, I Hope I Never, you know, uh, which um, just still resonates to this day, and um, uh, What More Can a Poor Boy Do? You know, it, it, you just run off the track listing of the album, and every one, it's like, it's like the jukebox goes off in your head, and um, of, the, of all these hits. But really, the crucial one was the, um, 
was the, the the first single I got you, and I will never forget riding and driving the car into town. Um, I've just got my driver's license, and um, I got you coming up over the radio, and just hearing that song with its its wonderful melody and its simple hooks and that terrific middle eight section, which to this day is one of uh, Neil Finn's um, most effective strengths is his use of the middle eight of you know starting off a song in a quite a somber way and then shifting to the major uh, in the in the um, middle section of the song and um, having this great celebratory chorus. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I just remember hearing this on the radio and hitting this steering wheel uh, at the same time. I was so thrilled to hear. I already knew about Neil Finn. We had um, uh, friends in common, and but I'd never met him. And um, but I knew I could hear all the musical influences, and it was just so exciting to hear such a song come out on radio. It was as good as anything else that was on from overseas. And you know, I was a bit of a cultural nationalist, and I was just thrilled to hear mm. this irresistible pop song. Well, unfortunately, uh, uh, as is normally the Australian way. Uh, any time a New Zealand band makes good, we tend to claim them for ourselves. And we said, yeah. oh, a great Australian band they recorded in Melbourne. They're from New Zealand. Yeah. No, 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 no. They're like, <laughs> we have this horrible, horrible habit. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've got to give Australia credit for feeding split ends for so many, for so many years. You know, for years when um, um, uh, to have that huge market um, keeping them afloat through those long years of struggle. You know, it took split ends years, eight years before I got you. So, um, well, it, just a quick question I wanted to intervene in there was, um, I, I think I remember something from the Enzology documentary, but am I right in recalling that um, between, uh, so like after Frenzy, they were in fact without a recording contract and and Michael Gadinsky needed some sort of convincing to offer them a lifeline and give them this one more album shot. Yeah, they faced losing the recording contract. They were still with Gadinsky. They, their record company, or really it was distributor out here, because uh, they were on Mushroom in Australia, um, their local record company in New Zealand was not supportive at all, Festival Records, who later became very supportive. But um, so... Split ends jumped ship over here in New Zealand, which is um, the people at Polygram at the time were terrific marketing people, and they planned the release of True Colors really well. So, yeah, there was a chance that they were just going to get lost there. They were broke in London. They got $5,000 from the Arts Council, and, and um, you know, Gadinsky had put money into them for quite a long time and, and sent them all over to England and got them back to Australia and you know, he'd really um, shown some commitment, so they had to put up or shut up. You know, mm. um, it was either that or get day jobs. So that that level of support, I think nowadays would be unthinkable if you don't get like um, if you get signed for a, um, a, a, a record. I mean, gosh, I sound very old-fashioned when I say that, but uh, if, you, if you get signed for um, you know one release and if it doesn't sell squillions in you know the first thirty seconds, then you're out on your ass. Oh, that's right, and not only yeah. the band, but the the uh, the record company executive is out on his ass. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. There's hardly any of them now, and um, 
there's hardly any majors, there's hardly any, you know, here in New Zealand, the majors have very lean um, teams of um, employees, and they've all got to um, report to the parent company, wherever it is, uh, every quarter, you know, improving on the last quarter, just at the time when, you know, CD sales are dropping through the floor, there's hardly any records to review anymore, mm. and, um, you know, uh, since the record business became really corporate over the last 20 years, every financial quarter has to improve on the last one. And, um, you know, so they can pay off the, the, uh, the merchant bankers who have all bought the record companies. Um, and that's just impossible to sustain a long-term career uh, where it might be the fourth album before a band really hits its stride. Mm. Yeah, you've got to instantly deliver. And so, I don't know, um, you know, this boutique um, artist-oriented um, future where things uh, just sold through word of mouth and the net and the majors just um, handle the, um, the Lady Gaga's or the uh, Justin Bieber's mm. uh, is possibly the future. But, you know, I love pop music where everybody's getting off on the same song at the same time. Mm. Uh, you know, um, Neil Finn has often said, um, in response to the inverse snobbery towards pop music from a lot, lot of rock bands, you know, um, it's kind of elitism amongst people wanting to be alternative, you know. But I've got no problem with, with um, pop music that's actually popular. <clears throat> Reaching every home is a, is a terrific goal, and um, but I think those days are pretty much over. But I think, you know, I think the sort of uh, popular music that Neil Finn is referring to, that Reach Every Home, um, still had some sense of uh, songwriting craftsmanship uh, and some time had been actually you know, thought to put into it as, as a, um, I don't know, as, as some sort of little, little, uh, oh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, I don't know, just a little perfect musical moment as opposed yeah. to just something selling to a particular market all oh, right the kids out there they'll want to hear something that sounds like this let's just give it to them whereas you know what neil and tim finn were doing was you know um without wanting to sound like pretentious wanker but they were sort of catering to their own muse they were uh, they did something that satisfied them as a lot of you know, great songwriters of the era actually yeah. did rather than trying to cater to what would sell a shitload of records they, they obviously wanted success but yeah. they had to do something that was artistically worthwhile for them. And I, was, I think when you refer yeah. to the Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga, that's not the case. Um, they, apart from the artistic, you know, the art band beginning to fit in, the True Colours really reflect where they got into music, which was in the 60s, when every week there were wonderful pop songs coming out, not just from the Beatles, but from so many other bands. And um, a crucial thing relating to this um, that we're talking about is you know, the long end of the artists and, um, and uh, is that they'd served these many years, um, you know, the pair of them performing at parties since they were kids, and then those eight years between Tim starting the band in 72 and the band actually cracking it in 1980. Um, this long apprenticeship of uh, performance and also um, just working in songs and what makes songs work and I often think this is a um, this is something that a lot of the alternative rock bands haven't 
done. You know, um, I, I, I was just watching the um, the Beatles anthology again for the first time in oh, at least ten years um, mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks, and you know, just seeing them in Hamburg playing all those uh, R and B hits and just you know entertaining a crowd for eight hours non-stop. Six you know, nights I, a week or something. Exactly, and I really think that a lot of the bands that uh, you know play to their shoes or you know stand at the back for the crowd and. Uh, make uh, music that's really more suitable to the bed rooms, your own little um, bedrooms, rather than you know actually entertaining and putting on a performance. Um, uh, you know they could have done with a lot of that apprenticeship that both the Beatles and Split Ends went through. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I yeah completely see where you're coming from. I, I, I think um, to a large extent. Um, uh, I presume you know, this sort of thing happened with uh, you know, a lot of uh, the New Zealand bands. You know, any, any of the bands like on the Flying Nun records would have done the same sort of thing. And certainly, like throughout the late '70s and or the, the '70s and the '80s, a lot of Australian bands uh, might not have done the same sort of apprenticeship of you know slugging it out six nights a week in a strip club like the Beatles had done. But uh, yeah. certainly, there was a lot of time spent on the road and playing playing pubs no bands were expecting to be playing your festival halls or, or or your big stadiums you know within within six months or anything like that they did put in the hard yards yeah and recently um uh i was reading uh the book by mark seymour of uh, hunters and collectors called 13 ton theory and it seemed like the, the hunters and collectors who actually sort of did do oh, they did pull an audience pretty quickly after forming but they went to London and really faced the same sort of fate that um, Split Ends had done. Maybe yeah. they didn't eventually, I mean, they, they became pretty successful in Australia, but um, I, I don't know that they reached, I don't know that there was any album that reached the same sort of uh, insane heights that uh, True Colours did, but they sort of went through the hard slog before uh, eventually reaping some sort of reward. Yeah. Um, the. The funny thing is both uh, Hunters and Collectors and Split Ends both started off with a determination to do original music um, and, and quite a quite difficult arty sort of music that, that captured a audience, you know, they were, they were both very theatrical. I mean, having said that earlier about um, you know, the, the ends served their apprenticeship um, live, but they were still determined to write original songs from the beginning. and. Um, but I, you know, they knew what made a pop song, whereas the thing I was thinking that flying on was really what I was referring to was, you know, a lot of the, those guys know their pop songs as well, but the idea of performing pop songs and seeing what works in a, in a tough pub audience, um, you know, you, you really um, quickly learn how to, um, that your pretensions uh, don't, don't fill the dance floor, yes. you know. Um, whereas Split Ends didn't do that pub circuit thing. They uh, they played uh, university, played halls, and um, set up their concerts in nice theatres. And uh, this is way back in the seventies when they were still, you know, looking like parrots. Um, they, uh, you know, they avoided the pub circuit thing, but they did grow up on these classic pop songs that they eventually, you know, found their feet with. Um, on true colours. 
but that's see, there's the interesting thing because you mentioned earlier on that um, uh, they uh, that grew up learning and learning and loving Beatles material, and yet this sort of to me only seemed like evident from uh, Neil's writing. I mean, you know, I, I think you know, fairly early on um, when you know, they they started out as an acoustic act. Uh, before eventually deciding, well, no, we're not going to make it like this. We're going to become an electric act. But it certainly seemed that Tim was interested in becoming, um, I, I think, the, the, the New Zealand's equivalent of Jethro Tull, as um, the Enzology documentary described it. Yeah, yeah, Jethro Tull. Which is pretty far removed from the simple, uh, strong, melodic pop books of the Beatles. The Jethro Tull concert here in New Zealand, um, in the Auckland concert, and Tim took Neil along to that when he was still at high school. Uh, that was really influential on Split Ends, that, those theatrics. And you know, you mentioned about how um, how it took a while for the Beatles' influence to come out in Split Ends with um, True Colours. Well, you know, in the early mid seventies, um, pop bands were trying to move away from the Beatles. They um, in the, in the early 70s, people had had enough of them, you know, they were so, the Beatles were so all-pervasive in the 60s that, um, you know, bands wanted to get out from under their shadow, and so you had a, another genre, like the power pop genre, that really kept that idea of the three-minute pop song um, alive. Um, so that's why, you know, Split Ends, when they first started, were going with the um, the zeitgeist you know that very theatrical thing of genesis and uh, bowie was another really important one and that jeff lotel thing of every show being a, a theatrical event but um they had to pare things down by the late 70s because uh, again things had shifted so much but they had the background the musical background to take advantage of that mm. um well, let's return a little bit to um uh, True Colors itself. Yep. Um, so you know we we know, you know we we remember you know, how big it was in the day and um, how uh, uh, it was. Um, I, I guess in the, you know, for, for split ends, both here and in New Zealand, it was um, a, a real game changer. Actually, just sort of like to say, I, I remember um, that you know the songs like the previous songs like My Mistake and Late Last Night. Uh, you know, even before I see red, you know, had been quite popular down here, yep. and um, even for all, you know, I guess the artsy side of it, they still had a strong uh, pop thread going through them. But you know, as we use the expression nowadays, you know, True Colors was the big game changer. You know, there was, I think, the album was number one on the charts, the Australian charts anyway, for you know, for weeks and weeks. And I got you, you know, every week we tune into. Um, the uh, local uh, pop music show uh, countdown, and it was you know they did the top ten at the end of the show, and it was just ridiculous. I think you have a nine, ten weeks or however it was, and you know, there, oh, yeah, I got you again. Um, so yeah, that that really put them into the uh, the pop stratosphere. Um, with with the advent later on of um, crowded house, you know, post uh, split ends. Uh, I wonder whether um, the legacy of Split Ends was still recalled. I mean, I know that you know they had a few uh, reunions and they were popularly attended, but do you think that 
um, True Colors as an album still has um, a well-remembered legacy amongst the general population, or do people just sort of remember the singles? I mean, when I was still like looking around asking asking friends, oh, do you want to join me to talk a little bit about um, True Colors? And like you know, a couple of people who are big pop fans, I thought would surely be up for it, you know, gone and said to me, oh, look, I bought I Got You and I, rem- and I bought I Hope I Never, but I never really bought the album or I don't really remember much about the album. So do you think it still had a legacy with, with the people who still revere it nowadays, uh, other musicians or, the, or, or just uh, the general public? What's its legacy? In New Zealand, it's like um, True Colours is the music equivalent of the All Blacks uh, beating the Springboks. <laughs> it is so big. Um, people have, uh, right through the 80s, um, it kept selling here and it reached the, you know, phenomenal sales, whereas where you might, the figures might be something like one in four households had True Colours. Wow. Um, split ends were much bigger here than Crowded House ever were in their heyday. It was really? really only, yeah, it was really only um, after Crowded House broke up that their music started to be played um, really across the board, you know, um, in supermarkets and everything. People, because Crowded House looked north, they were based in Melbourne and they looked to the Northern Hemisphere. They came here for tours every year, but, um, you know, uh, to be to give you an example, when I started doing the book and for years after writing the Crowder House book, I'd run into people and they'd say, oh, what are you doing? Aren't you writing a book on split ends? Or didn't you write a book on split ends? You know, uh, to a certain generation, uh, split ends were the, the giant totra tree and um, uh, Crowder House are the little saplings underneath its shadow, you know. Um, and um, in Australia, um, well, <laughs> it's funny, Nick Seymour always resented that because um, Splittings would often um, come in on board doing reunions, or you know Tim joining Crowded House briefly, and mm. Nick saying, you know, Splittings after they've broken up, you know, they're riding on the backs of Crowded House, and I don't think that's really fair compared when you look at all those weeks on Countdown at number one. You look at the hundreds of thousands of sales here in New Zealand. Where it's really the biggest album next to um, uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Mm. You know. That's how big it is here, yes. True Colours. And it was the album, uh, you know, I got you to what people started, but um, people had the album, and you, in that early 80s period, you'd go to any party, and um, people would put on True Colours, and it would stay on for the whole album. And, you know, there's so many good dancehall singles on it, and it's full of instruments and things like that. But it was unavoidable here. And this is the real mass market. This is no longer the split ends cult that turned out to see them in the theatres. Mm. Um, this is, I mean, it's funny to think, you know, me at the time being a um, you know, 20-year-old uh, aspirant rock snob, um, <laughs> I, I um, you know, I love the single, but I, I stopped going to see them in concert. I saw them in 77 when Phil Judd was in, still in the band, but I stopped seeing them from, uh, I didn't see them in the True Colours tour because, you know, it was all these 14-year-old girls, thousands mm. of them at the concert, and you know, there was that little bit of snobbery from me at that time. You know, I, I really appreciated the music, but I didn't want to go and see uh, a, a concert with lots of screaming girls. And it was only when um, I didn't see them again until the Time and Tide tour with Six Months in a Leaky Boat, where Tim and Neil were almost equal then, 
uh, Tim was still the, the front man. He was always the front man. But I realised just what a quality body of work they'd done throughout and how silly I was to not go and see them when uh, 90% of their crowd was 14-year-old girls. Mm. You know, I, I missed out on some good shows. Um, but yeah, Crowded House here, they they weren't played on radio until after Don't Dream It's Over was a hit in America. Mm. And um, uh, they were very much seen as the second cousins of Split Ends for the years. Um, and, you know, that's just... We, we, we had a very unfortunate situation here where the, the radio stations were antagonistic towards New Zealand music. They just... Uh, I, you know, I've got my own careers on that. I think they hated New Zealand rock stars because DJs for years were um, stars in their own right in their very small towns here, you know, with their deep voices and their, you know, um, their jock attitudes in there. Hmm. They don't want these uh, these um, pale musicians um, pulling uh, pulling them from their star status, you know, there's a kind of envy thing yes. going on. But uh, compared to Australia where, um, you know, thanks to Countdown, um, um, there wasn't the cultural cringe um, reflected through the media, you know. There, was, there were always big Australian stars through the 70s. We had them in the 60s, but through the 70s and 80s, um, you really had to be um, a... You, you had to be a huge talent to break through that antipathy from radio. Mm. And the two that did it were Split Ends and, um, and Dave Dobbin. Yes. So actually, I'll, I'll, I'll just take a, a sidestep because um, I don't think DD Smash, to my recollection, were that big in Australia. And uh, like our first, well, my first recollection of um, Dave Dobbin was um, Slice of Heaven. Uh, yeah. So what was, I know we, we're taking a sidestep from uh, Split Ends here, but just give us a little bit of a thing about DD Smash. Well, DD Smash were a pub rock band with its with this terrific singer and songwriter in front, uh, Dave Dobbin, and who actually went to school. He was slightly ahead of Neil Finn at, um, at uh, Sacred Heart College in Auckland. And um, they were... Um, his earlier band, The Dudes, had been big stars, pop stars here in the late 90s. And uh, when that broke up, he started this pub rock band, Dee Smash. And um, they quickly became big here in New Zealand as a... As a um, as a live act, and they had a few singles played on radio. And um, when he went over to Australia with CD Smash, they just couldn't get arrested. You know, they the, the grind for a New Zealand band without, um, you know, it might have been easier for, for Split Ends in the mid 70s because they well they were so unique. But Gadinsky uh, had a much smaller operation and really got behind them. But, you know, Dee Dee Smash got um, ground down by, um, you know, that, the Hume Highway thing in Australia where, you know, you've got to drive so far for gigs and you might get 50 people there and you're really starting from scratch again where no one's heard of you. Uh, so it was only when the Foot Rock Flat soundtrack came out and Dobbin did um, the Slump Heaven song, which was a huge hit both there. It was a, a month at number one over there, I think. And... Um, it was two months number one here in New Zealand. Um, that was really the first Australia had heard of Dave Dobbin, um, and whereas he'd been a star here for quite a while, um, but it didn't um, it didn't build to anything there. Mm. He's never been able to establish a, 
a um, an audience, a sustained audience over there. Beyond, you know, just over there, uh, the way I see it, uh, um, you could, you could um, um, contradict me, but um, it, it's like it's a novelty. It's a novelty song. Yeah. It's his only hit. I wouldn't say necessarily a novelty, but it certainly was a one-hit wonder. I really don't remember hearing anything beyond Slice of Heaven before, in which you know I thought was a real shame. And um, actually, I sort of was reminded of the song about um, six months ago. I'm, I'm, I, I sing in an a cappella group and I'm very much in the a cappella scene down here. And uh, uh, there's a local group here called Suede who did an absolutely corker of a um, cover version of Slice of Heaven, so I was reminded what a fantastic song that was. Here in New Zealand, Dobbin stands to the right hand of Neil Finn in stature, and um, when I first saw Crowded House, it was in a little uh, living room at a party, uh, which is the way that they really got Crowded House established amongst um, uh, the music critics and um, radio people in the States, and they did a party here in, in uh, Auckland, and um, they they covered about two or three Dobbin songs. They did Wailing, um, and um, you know they did several covers at that party. It was like a woolshed party. It was yes. a wonderful night that really persuaded me um, how wonderful Crowded House were. And this was six months before Don't Dream It's Over was a hit in the state. Mm. But you know that album had already been out. The the debut Crowded House album was out. Um, um, had already been out six months in New Zealand and I bought it in a second hand shop you know wow I, I bought it um, I worked for a music magazine but you know we gave the Crowded House album when it came out to, to, to the relevant reviewer so I didn't get a copy myself and you know they were already in second hand shops um, it was it was ages before Crowded House was really um, a band of notes here mm. uh, you know, um, yeah, look, I, I, I think I remember, it, it, I don't know, maybe my recollection, um, uh, maybe my memory's not taking me down the right path, but I seem to recall that when the album came out, it might not have had, had this um, anticipation of excitement like, oh wow, what's Neil Finn doing next? But I remember it, uh, it, it had a, quite a fair go right from, uh, right from the start and uh, they were playing um, strangely enough, a, a mixture of you know, the really big venues like Festival Hall, pretty much from uh, from the beginning, but they also really liked doing um, uh, the the small, uh, more intimate venues as well. And I remember as well being in a there was a little place here in Melbourne called ID's Night Spot, and um, I went along to see Crowded House. You know, the, the only time I thought I'd ever get to see them in a small venue. And IDs was only uh, licensed to hold 75 people. Now, as if Crowded House were only gonna play to 75 people, but they had, I don't know, about 150, 160 people in the place, which is still, you know, absolutely tiny for a band of even at that early juncture in their career, you know, it's still, you weren't gonna get Neil Finn playing in a, in a venue that small, but anyway, um, uh, the police, came and um, stopped the gig early because the, the venue had gone over its licensed limit uh, and Crowded House had had a three night run there and the next two nights they still met their obligations but you know, I think rumour has it that uh, the venue was only allowed to serve soft drink 
no um, no alcohol, and I think that led to the closure of the venue, crowded house. It played right. to a well and truly crowded house. I remember, you know, someone coming and whispering in Eddie Rayner's ear um, something, and you know, it must have been like, finish this song quickly, and we've got to get off stage. Yeah, yeah, um, but you know, when I see when I look back at that album, it's um, that debut crowded house album. It's where Neil had always been heading to from the True Colours period. You look at that great um, that line of pop songs, um, I Got You, um, uh, History Never Repeats, you know, One Step Ahead, um, and then moving through to, um, oh, plus, um, you know, uh, Message to My Girl. Mm. You know, a wonderful, wonderful uh, pop song in the, you know, that could have been written in the 1930s, you know. That, that's, I, I'd say that's, uh, between that and Straight Old Line, that's where I was convinced. I, I, I didn't get into Split Ends at the True Colour stage, but Message to My Girl and, and Straight Old Line were the songs that convinced oh, me that yeah. Neil Finn was a songwriting genius. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, first Crowded House album, they still do um, uh, Straight Old Line, or, you know, they, they did an you know, Song of one of those late footings records and um, um, songs like "Mean Mean to Me" and um, "The World Where I Live." You know, it's um, it's really a continuation of the same the, the same Neil Finn style of song. Well, just I, I was um, I pulled out my copy of True Colors the other day on on vinyl, should add, uh, yep. and listening to "Missing Person." It really sounded, even more so than something like I Got You, Missing Person sounded like it belonged on the first Crowded House album. Would you say that's oh, an assessment? Oh, look, it's so long since I've heard it. I've got it sitting here in front of me on vinyl. Yes. And um, uh, I've got to play that again. It's, it's um, I haven't heard, I haven't gone through the Split album, Split, I haven't gone through the Split Ends albums for 15 years. I did a big uh, series on them for radio. Uh, on Tim and Neil as composers of the week for our classical channel. Um, yes. We, we have a classical network like, you know, uh, you do on the ABC. Yes. And so I really did this kind of analysis of their songwriting back then. And um, I haven't played, I haven't played the uh, album in its entirety, you know, since the nineties. So okay. I've got to check out Missing Person. I'd be really interested to hear what you, um, the connection you make with Crowded House. Well, I, I think possibly because, um, I mean, there's that jangly guitar style that, um, yep. you know, it was so beloved of him. Uh, and also possibly maybe the deciding factor is there's less of the uh, Eddie Rayner keyboard, um, right. all-pervasive keyboard that, that's on a lot of the other tracks on the album. So you know, the, the, the guitar was allowed greater room to breathe um, but uh, even with um, uh, Malcolm's drumming on, on that, it, it sounds, oh, it really, it could be Paul Hester. Um, so, it, it, yeah, to me, it really yep. does sound like it belongs, but just on that first right. Crowded House album. Yeah, I mean, what you said there is so true about I Got You, which is the space. Uh, things are given room to breathe. <clears throat> um, Tickle did love the keyboard. And, uh, but it really works on What's the Matter With You, which is like um, uh, an Elvis Costello song from exactly. the very earliest days of the, of the attractions, you know. Very time. much so, very much but so. A far piece of organ of Steve Naive. I always loved What's the Matter With You. It always it, it uh, always knocked everybody out uh, when they did it live. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, so okay, so top top three songs off the album. What what are your favourites? Are they the singles or? Uh, yeah, I'd have to say that. Um, I got you. What's the matter with you? And I hope I never. Mm. Um, but you know, poor boy, I have a lot of time. The um, that's something that Tim Finn sings really well to this day. And these days, the the lyrics come out well. I mean, um, Tim is such a great balladeer, and that was shown on the album before with the song, uh, or rather, two albums before with the song Charlie. Mm. Uh, and let's not forget on Frenzy, there was that great song Stuff and Nonsense. Yes. Uh, it was kind of lost at the time, and that's a split end song that has a better life now than it did back when the album came out. Mm. So, mm. yeah, it's a terrific body of work from both of them. And just to finish, um, when the, the album that followed True Colors, you know, a hard act to follow, <laughs> um, mm. here in New Zealand it was called Wyata, and yes. in Australia it was called Corroboree. Yep. Um, a friend of mine wrote a review of that album for the magazine Rip It Up, which is the leading music magazine here. And um, he said how one he closed the review by saying how wonderful it was to hear the two Finn brothers uh, running towards the home straight, trying to beat each other <laughs> while while tossing diamonds to each other, you yes. know, back and forth, trying to outdo each other as they headed to the home straight. And uh, we're all the beneficiaries of that race. Wise words indeed. Look, Chris, I, I know we could probably talk for hours and hours, but yep. thank you so much for um, taking part in uh, the podcast. Um, it's been a really fun conversation. Really oh, enjoyed thanks. getting getting your perspective on um, on uh, not just yeah, true colours, but the whole uh, legacy of split ends, um, the the lead into Crowded House. Um, yeah, sure. we we didn't touch on Phil Judd, but uh, actually, so maybe maybe just for look two minutes yeah. if if we can limit it to a couple of minutes. But yeah. how do you think? Um, do you think split ends would have um, uh, become more popular, but would it just fizzle out if if Phil Judd had stayed on with the band, even if Neil Finn had come on board? If Phil Judd had stayed, do you think um, with with his sort of he he didn't like the pop thing as uh, as much, certainly not like Neil did. Uh, that's part one of my question. Part two is I hope I never about Phil Judd. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a long time since I looked at the lyrics of I hope I never. Um, uh, Tim and Neil, Tim, sorry, Tim and Phil did have a standoff there for quite some time. But let's, um, Phil Judd had left before this Rhythmia. Yes. And um, when they were still an art band, the reason he left was. Um, that he hated being on, you know, he, he hated being on stage, really, and uh, also personal conflicts. He's got his own issues, you know. Mm. But the idea of him not liking pop songs, I, one thing I, you just reminded me that I wanted to mention was that immediately after True Colors came out and I got you with a hit, um, you know, the first big New Zealand hit, original, an original song that was a hit, um, it's so remarkable. Well, it seemed like only months later, that this answer song came through that was um, just as big a hit here in New Zealand and in Australia, and that was Counting the Beat. Yes. Which to me is like the, just the absolute perfect pop song, and it it's, like a, it's like an answer song to uh, I Got You. So, mm. you know, Judd can pull out the great pop song when he, when he <laughs> wants to, um, but it's such a shame that he really hasn't reached his potential 
and um, you know he always went to these strange angular areas where which didn't make it easy for the audience mm. when he he really had um, the world was his oyster after counting the beat and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get into writing about music and the music business was I could never understand why counting the beat wasn't a hit worldwide and Gadinsky said the same thing at the APRA Awards when they kind of celebrated the history of New Zealand songwriting you know and he, he really uh, brought out a lot of swear words say why the hell wasn't this a hit and I <laughs> thought the same as a you know he was putting up the money I was just a kid reading the music magazines wondering why New Musical Express didn't have Counting the Beat in the in the charts whereas mm. you know uh, I Got You was on Coronation Street um uh, when it was a hit in Britain, it was in the top ten in Britain. You know, mm. I couldn't understand it with Counting the Beat, and uh, so the idea of you know, uh, in a fantasy world of uh, Tim and Neil and Phil all being in the band together harmoniously <laughs> for a good while, you know, it, it's staggering to think what they could have achieved. But yes. unfortunately, um, you know, uh, uh, you know. The, Neil and Phil were good mates. You know, they when when they were briefly in the band together, and when he rejoined. But uh, Phil came home to New Zealand and got involved in the punk scene, and that's what helped set up the Swingers uh, right. and uh, get rid of all those um, Genesis and David Bowie uh, influences. Yes. So, yeah, the Phil Judd question is um, something that your real hardcore Splitting fans love to debate. Mm. So, yeah. Talk to my mate um, Jeremy Ansell, who did that Enzoology series. Oh, about, well, you know, he, he did a fantastic job on that. That was uh, that was really well put together. I've quite enjoyed that. Yeah. All right. Look. Yep. Yeah, once again, thanks very much, Chris, sure, for um, nice. taking the time. Pleasure. And um, about it for ages. I must play the record now. Oh, good. Cool. Well, then there's there's been something good that's come out of this podcast. All right. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, and sure. uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes to uh, talk in some greater depth. Uh, Michael and myself about True Colours. You're listening to Love That Album. GGTMC Live for you fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service. Breaking films down and turning them around. Giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit GGTMC.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. And we're back. You're listening to Love That Album. Uh, Morris here and Michael Persh, my very special uh, co-presenter for uh, this edition of Love That Album. We're talking about split ends and true colors. And my thanks to uh, Chris Burke, uh, for speaking to me on the show, um, uh, take, giving his take on the uh, legacy of Split Ends, and he was a fountain of information. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was really terrific to uh, chat with him and get his take on the whole Split Ends phenomenon. Um, but you said um, that with New Zealand accent, then? Uh, yeah, well, you know, sorry, it's just it, it rubbed <laughs> off. It rubbed off, and uh, so anyway, uh, so look, I guess. First of all, I should be asking you, Michael, so what was your first epiphany? Were you a Split Ends fan right from the start? I, rem I remember hearing the tune Maybe from, from Mental Notes when it came out in 1975. And, and, and when, we, when we talked about doing this show, I, 
I guess like many people in Australia saw them on Countdown, but 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 maybe was played quite a bit on the radio in Adelaide. And I remember it wasn't, you know, as many people will remember, it was the visual impact of Split Ends that grabbed them. But for me, it was that tune, just hearing that tune. It's and a great song. It is, and it's still one of my favourite songs. And and that first album has has just something special about it. And yeah, I I was I was a fan then, but but second thoughts didn't really grab me as much. Late last night, got a lot of radio, but it didn't really do it for me. Although I've gone back in you know in recent years and bought the album, but that's I missed out on it. So I took a bit of a jump, and and then but the the following albums just grabbed me back again. Mm-hmm. Now look, it's interesting you mentioned. I I, I remember. Um, not necessarily because I, I wasn't a Split Ends fan back in the day, um, but I remember hearing. I think on one of those. You remember those compilations that they used to put out? Was it Ripper seventy six? You know, or Full Bore? They'd have the the pictures of um, uh, of the ass cheek with all the names written on of all the artists who were on there, and you know, there was a uh, uh, Super Nort and and John English and. And you know our artists like that of the day, and there was split ends with um, late last night. I remember you know hearing it on one of those albums. And thought, oh yeah, that's not a bad song. And you know things like uh, my mistake came out, and uh, thought yeah, it's unusual. I mean, I didn't sort of go pursuing them, but I just remember thinking that yeah, they're pretty cool pop songs. And actually, I probably should just sort of point out that you know, as people would have heard in the um, chat that uh, I had with Chris, you know they they started out with these art rock leanings, and yet songs like late last night and my mistake which whilst quirky and maybe in my mistakes case owed something to the uh maybe 1920s music hall sort of thing but they still had that pop sensibility they were far from being that they had an art rock leaning but they were far from being like peter gabriel era genesis or or yes or anything like that they were still they still had pop sensibilities and, and just on the subject of my mistake, if I can butt in, we, yeah. on, on the way back from the gig this afternoon, the, we had the radio on and they played My Mistake and my son was in the back of the car and he was convinced they were playing My Missed Stake. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, I should remember this, but there is a name for when you, um, when you mishear the lyric. Um, and I, I know this because uh, in, in my a cappella group, we did a show, we did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival a few years ago, and it was all based around that very concept. And, and Shane, here it is, I'm getting old, I don't remember the name of it, but, but, but there is a word applied when you hear, yeah, so excuse me while I kiss this guy, or, or yeah, when you mishear the lyric. My mistake, fantastic. Yeah, you're, you're not feeding him well, Michael. It was something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, okay, so, yeah, look, Mike, it took me a long time uh, before I sort of really fully got into the ends. I mean, I, True Colors came out, and uh, look, I guess, you know, there was always the Beatles versus the Stones thing, and the Sherbet versus the Skyhooks thing, well, you know, back in, uh, when um, True Colors came out, you were either a fan of Cold Chisel, you were a fan of uh, Split Ends, and, and I was definitely, at the time, in the Cold Chisel camp, and, um, uh, I, I, I still, I wouldn't say that, you know, I've gone away from Chisel, but, you know, I, I'm hitting myself in shame, you know, how could I have not been uh, a Split Ends fan? And I, I still wouldn't say, like, I'm full on, because there's still a lot of stuff which I don't get, but I do agree with you that Mental Notes is a great album, 
and there's a lot to love on True Colours, but I think where I sort of jumped on board was hearing, and it was fairly late in the piece, was um, hearing a message to my girl and straight old line. I just was convinced that, right, these are the songs of a pop writing genius in Neil Finn. Oh, straight old line is, is maybe one of my favourite. Split Ends tune, a great song, in, and I think we've, I've mentioned this before, but um, Noel Crombie's behind the drum kit on that one, and man, is what he is playing is fantastic. And that's the thing, I mean, he didn't ever consider himself a drummer, and he was more than happy to abdicate the uh, the drum stool when Paul Hester joined for the last album. So, you know, by his own admission, he could just sort of dance around stage and hit percussion and stuff like that, but he would, by his own contention he never thought he was a drummer and, and that's you know listening to that song you think that's absolutely crazy yeah he, he put most drummers most drum kit players to shame indeed and uh, my, my first time i saw split ends you mentioned sky hooks before split ends were the opening act oh, sky, really? hooks, sky hooks were the headliners and in, in between was acdc how's that for a line? what a triple bell <laughs> I have to say, Memorial Drive. There you go. My my first concert ever, um, and I, I I was I ended up being on the, the first uh, not in the first season of Rock Quiz, and so they you know, said, I said, what was your first concert? And it was uh, I don't remember. It was a triple bell. I don't remember the first act. They obviously weren't that impressive, but uh, it was JoJo Zapp and the Falcons and Cold Chisel on one of the three XY Rocktober concerts, I think, yeah, for three bucks or something like that. There you go. Big fan of chisel. They don't do shows like that anymore. You would never have split ends and ACDC on the same bill. No, no. No, (laughs) no. Uh, You can just imagine how the egos would have clashed backstage. But, but yeah, no, that that sounds mighty. Um, And if I could just diverse for just a second. Go for You you met... the chat we had with uh, with Chris and I, I'm, I haven't read his book and I'm I'm dying to chase it up. But there is there is also a great book out in probably two years ago by Jeff Apter, who's a very well known uh, music author in, in Australia called Together Alone, the Finns book. And and when I read that, one of the things that I did not know that's a great thing about Split Ends is that most of them, and I reckon maybe two thirds of them, actually use their middle names. Did you were you aware of that? You know what I I. I only found that out um, very recently. There's a, a great uh, uh, radio documentary that Radio New Zealand did, and I think I mentioned this in my discussion with Chris, uh, called Enzology. It was a 10-part yes. radio serial, yes. and um, they mentioned it in that. So, you know, blink and you miss it. You better go back to it. I think it's in the first episode they make mention of that. But I think except for Phil Judd, I think um, Phil is his first name. All the rest of them went by their middle names. That's right, isn't that? That is so weird. Mm, mm. <laughs> and that is a great documentary. Absolutely brilliant. One of the best radio docos on any band I've ever heard. Well, you know, Split Ends were national heroes. I mean, Chris mentioned in um, our chat that one in four homes in um, New Zealand owned a copy of True Colours, so you know they were they were real national heroes. Um, they, they they went through the hard yards, and prior to True Colours, they'd spent I don't know three or four you know, really lean hard years. They couldn't get arrested in England. Um, and actually, I was saying to Chris as well that I just recently read in the holiday break um, the Mark Mark Seymour 
um, autobiography. Isn't the, that a great book? That's a fantastic book. 13 Ton Theory, and really the story very much for Hunters and Collectors was a similar one. You know, a, uh, a band that started out in a, in a fashion very different to how it ended, and they spent, you know, two or three very um, lean years in England. It was a, it seemed like that was a place that really broke, and I don't know, not broke as in break made them famous, but broke them apart and made a lot of uh, musicians um, very downtrodden and uh, split ends and hunters and collectors uh, shared um, those very rough times before eventually uh, finding some success. Indeed, and a, and a, yeah, a great book that is. I, I read it maybe a year ago and it yeah, re- thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, it's, a, it's a very hard to put down book. I mean, I normally take my time over a book, but uh, I read through that one very, very quickly. It's a great story, even if you're not a Hunters and Collectors fan. It's a really fascinating story. Mm-hmm. All right, well, look, let's um, let's have a bit of a chat about um, uh, True Colours in uh, some sort of detail. Let's go through the album now. Um, it was produced by uh, a fairly young fellow, uh, Chris had mentioned. Um, uh, he, he was maybe you know, 19 or 20 at the time, a guy called David Tickle, um, who'd gone and recorded... Uh, or produced um, their uh, single I See Red, but didn't actually get the nod to do uh, Frenzy, but that wasn't um, the end's choice. I think it might have been Mushrooms uh, say they wanted a big name. Um, and, and who they got, I can't remember who they got, but it was they, they were very unhappy, very dissatisfied with it. So um, when they got one more bite of the cherry, um, they were allowed to get who they wanted, and they got David Tickle, and the sound, the, the production work on it is... Um, quite incredible and and frenzy was was of course recorded in england and and that is my favorite split in split ends album but i agree the production is not anywhere not a patch on true color and, mm. and, and that's maybe something that i that i think the band you know i think that the general consensus of a lot of split ends is that's a great album that the, the production just isn't quite there mm. i think it was probably the uh the uh, history of rock music is littered with many such great albums that sounded like the microphones were in the toilet cubicle, you know, 10 buildings away from the studio in a paper bag. <laughs> um, but yeah, no such accusations can be made of, um, of true colours. Um, so the album really opens up with a, a, a statement of intent. Now, I forgot to ask Chris this, but I'd heard a rumour um, the opening track, oh, I should actually also mention that the the album opener for us in Australia and New Zealand was different to the rest of the world. In um, Down here, it opens up with Shark Attack, but because of the success of I Got You in Australasia for the um, American and European release, they opened up the album with I Got You and putting Shark Attack as track number two. But certainly I think Shark Attack is a far better choice for uh, album opener. Certainly, just just grabs you and then throws you against the wall. Mm. Now, look, I, I forgot to ask, but I think I've heard—I don't know if it's on Enzology or just read it somewhere—that um, Malcolm Malcolm Green, their um, their uh, drummer of the time, um, he was he was pretty scared because um, they asked him, right, you've got to go play this. It's a, it's a very straight-ahead drum beat, but. It's, played really, really fast. It's the sort of thing that maybe Marky Ramone could have done in his sleep, but, <laughs> but um, 
uh, Malcolm Green was not Marky Ramone, and uh, I think he played for his life on that track. Like he, he sort of figured, if I don't do this, I'm out of the band. Um, have you heard that story? I have, but and, and yes, and that's um, uh, there's there's quite a bit about that in I think Jeff's book that I mentioned before. Okay. But, um, when you when you hear the recordings, and I I, I I don't really recall when I've seen them live, and I've seen them live a few times play that song. But when you actually hear a live recording of it, they're playing it faster. <laughs> yes. Oh wow. So um, so the, the live recordings that you're talking about, are they ones with Malcolm Green on the kit or with um, the, uh, the Noel one, Crum- the the one I the one I'm prefer, referring to, yeah, was was the um was Malcolm Green, and it's just like wow, just a hundred miles. <laughs> you think the the uh, the album version is fast? It's it like, is. Like, he must have uh, he must have spent a long, long time practicing. <laughs> and Malcolm Green, I think, because this was his his sort of, although he played on the next album, he didn't he didn't tour that. And I I think Malcolm Green, as is a lot of guys that were in Split Ends, was a little underappreciated. He, uh, he was very much a field drummer and very much had a style of his own. And, and although everyone else who was who was set behind a drum kit, Noel Crombie included in Split Ends, there was something really, really individual about Malcolm Green. So what was it? I forgot. Emlyn... Emlyn Crowther. Emlyn yes. Crowther, yeah, who was a original pre- drummer. Now, he was, he was very much a uh, technical drummer, wasn't he? Maybe a bit more... A bit more if, if I could not not really Keith Moon, but but, but played the kit a lot more, I think, than Malcolm did. So I, I guess maybe like a cross between if Keith Moon had played jazz, because yeah, there, there, yeah. there's, there's certainly um, uh, a, a lot of the uh, I don't know. I, I, I see him as you know doing uh, doing a lot of um, sand on the roof type uh, drum snare rolls and and uh, all sorts of technical stuff around the kit, but um, but uh, Malcolm Green is is definitely a uh, a more straight-ahead rock drummer. I mean, no, no, no certainly a great one, but um, far, uh, not not in the technical camp that Emily Crowther was. But, but I also remember Neil Finn introducing him at a, at a, at a, at a Spillane's gig once as as their cocktail drummer, and and he really <laughs> did have that down pat. That you know, a, a tune like. Um, um, I hope I never, or something like that. You know, he really did have that that sort of you know late night cocktail style down pat. That you know, it's it's a great sound. Not a lot of drummers can do that. Mm-hmm. No, indeed. Um, so so now that we've gone and established that he is definitely um, the one who I guess you know you and I first pay attention to on uh, Shark Attack. Um, uh, the the track itself, uh, I read that um, uh, Tim Finn wrote this song. At the suggestion of David Tickle, um, you know, he was trying to come up with a song about um, uh, uh, love gone wrong, and um, uh, Tickle but was lacking inspiration. Tickle said, "Well, why don't you use like a something that's uh, in the news or something that um, sticks in people's memories from popular culture as an analogy?" So uh, Tim Finn chose Jaws, which was still you know maybe two years of. Um, it had been out of the cinema for two years, but it was still very strongly in people's minds. They were using uh, you know, shark attack as a metaphor for um, his, this failed relationship. She chewed me up and she spat me out. I didn't want to meet a man-eater. Shark attack. But T- and Tim Finn has 
a great knack of doing that, and and that's what I love about his songwriting. He, he uses metaphor, and and that's a great example of it. In in a similar way to maybe the best known example of that is is Tim's tune, "Dirty Creature," and mm. you know, to me, it's it's a similar sort of thing where he's talking about something totally different, but but yeah, it just shows what a a great lyricist Tim Finn is. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I'm going to put forward a contention, see what you think. Remember, like, when we are talking about the tubes, I put forward the contention that it was a musical that um, just hadn't been written yet. I'm putting forward the contention um, about, uh, about, about not all, but most of Tim Finn's songs on this album, that he paints himself as a victim, or at least the character that he's created. He's painted himself as a victim, and we'll go through this. I mean, Shark Attack seems fairly obvious, I guess, because you know he's a um, uh, his his character in there. He's been he's been lured in, you know, uh, sexually had her way with him, and then spat him out. And he he sees himself, oh poor poor pitiful me. She chewed me up. She spat me out. I didn't want to meet a man eater. Shark Attack. Um, <laughs> did you like that? <laughs> Very good. good. Uh, but yeah, well, I'll, as we go through the album, I'll point out the other songs where he's uh, see, he sees himself as a bit of a victim. And I've got to say, um, this is this song is a lot more fun than listening to Paul the Notes' Man Eater, which I think is just a bit weird. <laughs> I think Tim, Tim Tim's songwriting is is very emotional. It's very personal. It's it's very different to Neil's songwriting, and and you can really you know this is the first album where where Neil really had any serious writing on the album, and you can really see the difference. And 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 also Tim Tim's writing always has had oh, maybe a melancholy about it that 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 Neil touches on sometimes, but Tim Finn is the master of that. He just he just. Yeah, emotion and melancholy are just, for me, just, you know, the, the trademarks that I love about Tim Finn's songwriting. Mm, yeah, well, we'll touch on that on the, on a couple of the other songs on this album. Yeah, that's, a, that's a very good point, for sure. Um, so, uh, probably before leaving this song, I should also point out that um, uh, this song really um, shows off to great effect Eddie Rayner's uh, keyboard style and... Um, uh, Chris in his chat with me had uh, made mention that David Tickle was a big fan of keyboards. Not so much piano, but loved keyboards. And so I guess this was fairly early on in the uh, days of, uh, I don't know, I mean, you still wouldn't be calling Split Ends a new wave band, but um, maybe they led the way for a lot of what came afterwards with the new wave band, but they didn't necessarily have uh, Eddie Rayner's great classical training. But also, also the keyboards in Shark Attack are very, very much Eddie Rayner and and great stuff. Like he just, it really, you know, it shows how versatile he is. And, and if anyone has seen Eddie Rayner play, he's just jaw-dropping to watch. And the last time I saw him play was, um, I think the last time Tim Finn came to Adelaide, he played at a club and, and Eddie was in the band. And again, he was just... Nearly stole the show. He's just so good to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's uh, go on to uh, track two, at least as far as the Southern Hemisphere is concerned, uh, on the album. And this, well, this is the song. This is the one that um, drew hundreds of thousands of teenagers, and you know, dare I say, millions of teenagers, uh, to uh, split ends. And that's uh, "I Got You." This is the song that really announced Neil Finn as a major songwriting force in the band. 
definitely did. And and you can when you listen back to I Got You, you can you can hear so much crowded house in that song, or I can anyway. Mm. Well, actually, I'll, well, you sort of jumping the gun there. I was going to say that um, the song that comes later on in the album, we can touch on it a bit more, uh, called Missing Person. That song sounds to me completely like it's a, an off cut from uh, the first Crowded House album. That one definitely did. I think maybe I got you would have sounded like it belonged on Crowded House if not for Eddie's keyboard. Indeed, yes, totally. And and it's, I think it's um, it's Tim's guitar style as well, because he was never uh, an electric guitar player. There's there's a there's a quirky way in which he plays, and that's carried through. Mm. And and for me, this song sort of introduced that sound, that that rhythm guitar sound that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, because apparently originally this was not the song that the band saw as being the single, um, but I think it was either Gadinsky or or David Tickle who said, no, this is the single, and they were all really surprised when not only did it do well, I mean, you'd remember, Michael, you know, seeing it on Countdown every week for like about eight, nine weeks, they did their top ten, and oh yeah, number one again, I got you. And I think think you're right, I do recall, I think it might have been Gadinsky who who actually... um, chose it as the single and, and pushed for it but an I- interesting thing that I remember reading was I Got You came from a jam at a sound check at, um, and if my memory serves me rightly, reading about um, a, f- a famous gig in, in the Gold Coast called The, the Playroom and uh, and Split Ends were, uh, were just doing a sound check and, and Malcolm Green and, and Neil Finn were jamming to uh, the opening riff to to I Got You, and that's how it came about, apparently. I, I think I've heard that story too. might have been in the Anzology uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, it's a I've great story. Mm-hmm. It's great how just something, you know, something, just a jam can turn in to, to change the fortunes of a band. Mm. Uh, look, you know what? I, I've, since, you know, since I was uh, re-listening to this album a lot for the podcast, and it forces you to go back to the lyrics and really listen to the lyrics, which is really what I do, I guess, for all of these shows. But whereas for a lot of the time, I guess I just saw this song as a, a goofy love song, you know, um, someone who's maybe slightly underconfident, but you know, it's ostensibly a love song. And now I'm going through the lyrics a lot more. I sort of find that Neil is, uh, well, I hope it's not the case. Oh, so, oh uh, Neil sounds like he's created a character who's actually very creepy. Um, so if Tim on this album sees himself as a victim, so Neil, a mistune anyway, is a very underconfident lover who has the potential for over-possessiveness. He's not singing about the joys of love or he's not swaggering like Mick Jagger. I mean, you know, well, you could hardly because he's not thin. Um, he's not you know, swaggering like that, you know, sexual prowess. In this song, he's got this girl and he sounds like he's almost grateful for it. And his, his character almost sounds like he's prone to insane jealousy. You know, he sings, there's no doubt not when I'm with you. When I'm without, I stay in my room. Where do you go? I get no answer. You're always out. It gets on my nerves. And I never really paid attention to that as a lyric, but it, his, his character really sounds creepy and over-possessive. Have, have, have you ever had that take on it? I'd never really thought about it, but I guess when you when you sort of think about it in the context of, of how Neil was thrown into split ends in the UK and, and the the dire straits that they were in and 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 how it came to this, yeah, maybe. 
is uh, certainly, I think the song has made it a little bit more interesting for all of it. And, you know, there we all going, there we're all singing you know, this song, you know, um, at parties at, at the time. And really what we're singing, you know, from the perspective of a, of a character who's you know, over-possessive, something that um, I guess uh, people don't really like to think that they are. But then again, you know, years later when they're singing about, um, they're singing such a, joyous sounding pop song like Mean to Me from the first Crowded House album and you know what's that about that's you know we're all singing and her friends committed suicide but you know, it just uh, you know these things that we uh, buy in our pop songs what do we do <laughs> so so we go on to the next um, song on the album which is uh, another Tim Finn composition and this is also uh, pretty big on the radio 3XY in Melbourne what was a big what was a big pop station at the time in um, in Adelaide, Michael. Um, well, AM station was 5KA back then. Yeah. Uh, which was which was sort of a, a, a sister station to 3XY. Yeah, okay. Because um, I, 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 uh, EONFM, as it was called at the time, didn't come until I think about maybe late 1980. And uh, I don't think that they were sort of like going at the time for the, for the split end style band. It was certainly more. Uh, not quite alternative, not like in the sense that Triple R or PBS is, but um, uh, but they were certainly going for something different from the 3XY pop style. So pretty much True Colors had its life in Melbourne on 3XY, and it's obviously yeah, it sounds like yeah, 5KA in, in Adelaide. But, um, yeah, well, but, it was sort of it was sort of on the cusp of, of FM radio really opening up in Australia, wasn't it? It certainly was. Um, uh, so. Track number three, What's the Matter With You, received, I think, a fair bit of airplay on 3XY at the time. Do you remember, was that a single? I don't think so, but it, it did get a lot of play, yeah. But but that's that's the thing about, you know, when you go through True Colours, there is so many songs that could have been singles that were, you know, strong songs. And that's, and that's I think, the you know, why this album still stands up, that Tim songs and Neil songs on this album are so strong. Mm. Like I mentioned... You know, when we first started our chat, when you when you look back at um, the first Blends album, the first Australian album, you know, Tim, Tim, there's not one song on that album that Tim wrote by himself. He was writing with Phil Judd, or the other songs were Phil Judd songs. So, so given that Neil's songs are, you know, Neil has come onto his own in, in this album, but also Tim is, at, you know, one of the high points of his songwriting as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't know if you ever saw this. There was like a little cartoon that might have appeared i don't know in the australian or or one of the newspapers and it came out i think about the time of uh crowded house's Woodface album and the, the little cartoon was in two halves and on the front like on the left hand side it said uh, in the 1970s there's a picture of uh neil down on one knee begging of tim saying please let me be in your band and on the right hand panel has a picture of tim on one knee uh, on one knee begging in front of neil saying please let me be in your band did you well, also that I, I don't recall it but I, I totally agree like and and woodface for me is is the high point of crowded house the the first side of woodface is one of the best sides of an album ever well some great my, great song well, we'll have to cover Woodface, I think, at a uh, at a later date. Um, but uh, yeah, so back to this. Uh, what's the matter with you now? This song. Uh, what I really love about Eddie Rayner's sound here, he's obviously been listening to Steve Naive of um, uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Would you say that? I mean, it, 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 it sounds very much like um, 
anything off uh, this year's model. Yeah, but it was sort of the keyboard sound of the era, wasn't it? Well, I, I certainly think that uh, uh, Steve Naive played a strong part in that. He definitely pioneered that sound. You know, there, there were other bands that came on uh, onto the new wave circuit, as it were, and I don't think they had half the, uh, the training that either Steve Naive or Eddie Rayner had, so they were like pale imitations. But these two guys were the real deal. Um, not only had the, the great keyboard playing chops, but they also had um, the great imagination to create these uh, uh, really quirky and melodic keyboard parts. Indeed. And, and for me, hey, what's the matter with you? Was it was sort of a precursor to, to corroboree that, that a lot of those sounds and, and seemed to, to go into that next album? Mm, mm. Um, so, so lyrically on this song, uh, as I mentioned before about you know, Tim, as I said, I see the theme of this album, for, at least for Tim, as um, about his, himself as victim. Um, or in this song, more Tim's perception as victim. So uh, given, the, you know, given all these songs are in the first person, that could be uh, any of these songs, but it's more pronounced here. He goes on an aggressive path with, uh, with someone who he perceives as always being a whinger. More specifically, she complains about all that Tim Finns does, and he's singing, you know, what's the matter with you? You look down on everything we do. I really wonder if you see today like I do. What's the matter with you? Um, but, you know, on the one hand, it could sound like, you know, Tim's just, you know, chiding someone for having a negative opinion, but I don't know, just because I'm looking too much where I probably shouldn't be looking. But I, I think you know, his, his character on this album is a paranoid one. And I tend to think that you know, who he's singing it to doesn't necessarily look down on absolutely everything. But you know, he's, he, he's paranoid and he sees himself once again as victim. And, and he sort of has this arrogance. I really wonder if you see today like I do, which sort of reminds me of the, uh, the McCartney um, uh, part of uh, We Can Work It Out. You know, see things my way. Only time will tell if I'm right or I'm wrong. But... If we look at things your way, well, then things will turn to shit. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sort of looked at this song, especially in hindsight, that that it was, you know, the at the time of recording this album, the world at large didn't get split ends, and and I sort of I sort of came at it thinking, oh, this is you know, a tune of frustration that, you know, the the band knew how damn good they were, and the rest of the world just didn't get it. <laughs> and, and really, but when they were recording this, this was the last roll of the dice. That's right. That's what I mean. Yeah. And, uh, no, and, but, but that's the thing. No band today would get that shot. You know, I spoke about this with Chris, but you know, it's a very different musical world today. He said that you know, the, the, the major companies in New Zealand are really, they've sacked a lot of staff and, and um, there's hardly any record shops over there. And it's, it's a very different way. You know, you, if you if you can't sell the first 30 seconds of your song, forget it, you don't get another chance. And, and I think Michael Gudinski has, has a lot to do with that. Um, and he's, you know, he's done it with so many artists in, you know, in Mushroom Records over the years. Paul Kelly's another example who, who really didn't have a hit for, for maybe four albums, but, but Gudinski just kept on chipping away until mm. it happened. And you know, that's, that's a rare thing anywhere, even back then, really. Mm, yeah, well, full credit to him for having uh, having that foresight. He really did make a, a, a great empire. And I'd be a liar if I said that I cared for absolutely everything or even most things on the Mushroom label over the years. But you know, no one could ever accuse him of not nurturing Australian uh, talent. Indeed, so yes. Mm. Um, so 
what else? What else have we got here? Okay, so following, um, following, uh, what's the matter with you? We're going to uh, the first of two instrumentals on the album, uh, "Double Happy," um, which um, you know, I look on Wikipedia and it tells me that um, uh, the term "double happy" is derived from a Chinese ornamental design. Um, anything that you know about this? No, I don't know, not at all. But but it's again, it, it highlights for me again what a great instrumentalist and a great writer Eddie Rayner is he he although Tim and Neil the lyricists were so strong Eddie Rayner was the glue that kept those together and and the instrumentals all through Split End's career I think have shown that and and actually you know I think it's just about just about worth having a, a split ends instrumental compilation to actually show that off. <laughs> I think there's at least one on every album. But, right. but, but this one for me, yeah, shows off what a great player Eddie is, and and also also shows off Noel Crombie as well. Which which I I think that's the only the only disappointment of, of this album for me is that it doesn't show off uh, Noel Crombie as as much as it, it could. The stuff he's playing is is quite buried in a lot of the tunes. Yes, that's true. I, I I've read that. Um, I think he was a bit disappointed. So quite quite sad for him, I guess. That you know what was considered uh, the band's um, I don't know, maybe not artistically, but certainly uh, most popular moment in the sun. And he had um, when all was said and done, at least in the public eye, very little to do with it. Mm, indeed, and, and when you know when you think about Spillane's rival, though Tim and Neil were a focal point. Eddie Rayner and um, and Noel Crombie were the musical focal points of that band, mm. really, and they they always they always will be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, we go from that uh, instrumental. I don't know, you can't really describe an instrumental, but it is it, very much of its time. A very uh, quirky sort of thing with uh, the um, uh, with, with Mal Green's drum kit and uh, Eddie Rayner's keyboard, probably the most noticeable uh, aspects of that tune. But, um, but yeah, yeah, quite a, quite a nice little uh, instrumental track there. Um, going into uh, Tim's songs, uh, I Wouldn't Dream of It. Now, I don't know where you stand on this. This one sort of you know, sags a little bit in the album. It sounds to me like it's more like a fella, but I don't know, is it a track that you really like? Well, I do. Um, again, as, as with... Um What's the matter with you? I think it's a sign of things to come. The future, you know, split ends sort of went down this road a little more with the next album. But but I really like the, the the feel of this song. It's got a great rhythm. It's got a great sort of um, you know tripping over itself sort of rhythm. And I really that was just something a bit different, and I like it. That's mm. that's what really I remember about the tune. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then that leads into um, the last track on side one of the vinyl, um, which I still have. Uh, of uh, the album I Hope I Never um, now uh, even though I guess I Got You was the big big hit single uh, and this was also a very successful single I'd say that in a way that this song is the centrepiece of the album well it was the, the second single and I remember hearing it when it was released as the second single thinking my god what are you doing it's you know the the total opposite of I Got You, but it but it worked, and I think it worked because it wasn't a I Got You part two. Mm. So I've heard, I don't remember if it was on Enzology, and certainly Chris didn't seem to remember. But have you heard this, the rumor that um, I hope I never 
was Tim's dedication to Phil Judd. I ha- yeah, and I think that's I think that's mentioned in Jeff's book, um, Together Alone. And yeah, I think you're right. I I, I it, it's it's hidden in the recesses of my memory somewhere. And and look, I you know having read the book and, and sort of being reasonably familiar of what happened with Phil along the ways of split ends. You know, he's one guy that I really feel sorry for, that he, he put so much into the band and he was such a, an integral part of Split Ends for so many years. He really never got to bask in the glory. And yeah, I, and I think Tim Tim had, from what I understand, Tim, Tim and uh, Phil Judd had a very much an up and down sort of friendship relationship. So, you know, it, but I think, you know, in recent years, they're, they're friends and, and everything's cool, but it's, yeah, I think when he wrote this, it was very different. I suspect that uh, Phil probably wouldn't have necessarily liked that um, uh, massive, popular basking in in uh, the adulation. I, I, I gather the fact that he was probably a little bit more private. And I mean, he quit the band originally just because I didn't. You know, he, he didn't like life on the road. He, I mean, he rejoined after a bit, but um, only to then leave again. But um, I, I suspect that if he'd been on True Colours uh, and received this full-on uh, massive media and general public attention, it might have uh, been too much for him again. Mm, indeed, indeed. And and I, I think the, the, a lot of the quirkiness of the early split ends was was Phil Judd and, and maybe the, you know, this is when, you, even when you, you know, those elements are still on True Colours, but when you listen back to it, it really is quite a slick pop record maybe mm. although having said that when you listen to what Phil Judd did with the swingers you know he did it so who knows yeah yeah um, you know, often a pop song uh, like a, a ballad will build up to um, its emotional punch but what is really stark about this song is Tim Finn hits you with an emotional punch right from the opening line I fall apart when you're around. When you're here, I'm nowhere. Wow! You normally like wait a verse or two before delivering a line like that. Uh, and Tim's gone. Nope. This is how I'm start the song. I'm letting you know straight ahead how I feel. Um, and the emotional punch where it takes the twist is, I hope I never have to see you again. That's the twist. But you know, the, so it's almost like you know, the emotional punch is you mean so much to me. And yet, I can't be in the same room as you. Mm-hmm. And, and again, as, as we said before, this you know this is another example of, of how Tim Finn you know writes from the heart. He really does. Like, and, and not a lot of people do that. A lot of a lot of songwriters will will try to do that or pretend to do that. But you can tell Tim Finn, you know, this is for real. Mm. But I, I guess once again, you know, following on, I'm, I'm going to hand on this. Michael, my um, my whole theme of uh, uh, Tim seeing himself as victim. This is very much, as you say, it's, it's his personal song. It's his perspective. But um, what would Phil, what was Phil's response to this? What you know, Tim saying, right? I can't be with you. you know, it's just too difficult for me. It's too hard for me. But what did Phil feel? Yeah, indeed. And and I've you've, you've got me. I, I'm going to go back and uh, and read some passages out of Jeff Abner's book because I, but because I can't exactly remember what um, what was happening between Tim Finn and Phil Judd at that time, and I'm uh, I'm interested to go back and find out. Mm. All right. So um, after the uh, the beauty 
and uh, cocktail lounge piano. So I hope I never. We start off on side two with uh, another song that I remember 3XY were playing. It was uh, unusual for them to be doing the album tracks, but um, this is no ordinary album. Um, nobody takes me seriously anyway. I, I tend to think that this is the theme song of my life. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, really, are you listening to this and you think, what, Tim, what's your problem? Nobody listens to a word I say. And every girl I meet seems to get apathetic when I look at her that special way. Um, what else? If there was a fire, they'd just leave me to burn. Oh, Tim, Tim, Tim. Look, to be fair, it's, it's a very bouncy song and, um, you know, maybe singing it fairly tongue in cheek, but, oh, Tim, you poor victim, you. Um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm wondering whether a lot of these songs actually even came as a result of, um, uh, you know, the, the miserable time that they were having in England. I think so. I think, I think a lot, you know, a lot of the, the themes in, especially Tim's writing, after Frenzy, or even in, you know, from Frenzy on, do, do, does reflect that that they really did have a miserable time in the UK mm. before, uh, before making True Colours. So you know, it's got to affect them. And and I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm not um, I'm not up with the details of of uh, Tim's love life, but I, I do remember you know reading over the years that he's had a pretty tumultuous time with women over his life. I remember, I think at the time he was um, he was uh, going out or married to uh, Greta Scarchi, who uh, uh, I, I think I had, I remember watching her in a couple of films and thinking, Tim, you lucky, lucky, lucky bastard. Uh, so, yeah. But, but this song too has some, you know, it takes me a little bit back to, to some, there's some, some Phil Judd sort of stuff in there that, that, that I think maybe is rubbed off on Tim to, you know, maybe his little, maybe even, you know, not consciously, but, uh, you know, a little tip of the hat to the uh, the old split ends, maybe. Mm. Okay. Uh, so next track on the album, I, I alluded to this earlier on when you mentioned that you thought I Got You sounded like a, uh, a precursor to Crowded House, but certainly this song, Missing Person, definitely sounds like... Um, it would it would have fitted quite easily on the first Crowded House album. Um, I don't necessarily think it's as strong as something like I've Got You, um, but it's still a damn fine song. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it would have fitted in on something like Woodface, but certainly on the first um, Crowded House album, uh, you know, thematically it reads to me like someone who just wants to try something new in their life and vanish from their everyday existence. You know, I walk home the wrong way hope I'll go astray, I'd like to be a missing person. I mean, it could have been Neil writing about leaving his old life behind and joining Split Ends. Indeed, yes, indeed. Mm. And, and and we spoke about FM radio before, and I, I'm thinking, now that I really think about it, because this tune, again, got a lot of radio play, and, and FM radio, when it, when it first came, as you said, in Australia you know, tried not to be like pop radio and they played a lot of, you know, a lot of album tracks and and, and maybe this, you know, um, it's starting to come back to me now that I think True Colours, you know, a lot, because we're so familiar with, with so many of the tunes that weren't singles, they did get a lot of play on, on FM radio yeah. in the very early days. Mm, and this mm. is certainly one of those songs. Well, the next song on the album definitely got a lot of airplay and I don't remember if this is a single or an album track. I think it was a single. And I'm talking about Poor Boy. 
think from memory was the third single. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to um, have a go with this because I've actually, apart from saying, of you know, it's got a lovely eerie melody and you know, very catchy melody. I just sort of think, what does it mean? It's it's a this, metaphor, surely. This, to... this is my favourite song on the album. I love this song, mm. and and again, I think it shows, you know, how how Tim Finn can write a melancholy tune, but in in a way that it's all, it's all metaphors, it's all about something else, and it's a great song. I think it conjures up, you know, it's sort of got that, um, you know, there's 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 mentions in it of um, of sort of you know falling in, or the you know the basic premise of the song is is someone falling in love with someone via a shortwave radio, or, mm. you know, to that effect, and and that's you know that's pretty quirky subject for a tune in the first place, isn't it? But it's. Um, yeah, and and this is one of the the few tunes from I think the only tune from True Colors that Tim still plays in his live set. And and I, I, the last time I heard him play, he played played it very very slowly and very piano orientated as, as Eddie was in the band. And yeah, had almost a, a sort of jazzy cocktail feel about it. And magnificent. It's it's it showed me what. The, you know what a great tune this is because it can be changed around and just have a totally different feel and still be as magic as it was. This, you know, as I said, this is my favourite tune on the album. It still sounds as fresh as it did when I first heard it. Where you know, I've got you. I've maybe heard a few too many times. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was last year or the year before the Melbourne Theatre Company um, ran a production of a, a play called Poor Boy. Um, it was a new musical, and they'd gone and basically written. Um, a, a musical or gone and written a story around um, the songs. I can't remember, is it both the Finn brothers or just around Tim Finn's songs? But um, Poor Boy, the, this whole lunar intergalactic love affair sort of thing was the, um, I think, might have been the uh, central premise and it had Guy Pierce uh, treading the boards here. But um, uh, did you hear anything about that or go to see that in Adelaide? Nope. That one passed me by totally. Yeah, well, maybe it was just done in Melbourne. Don't know, but um, but yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, uh, another wonderful, uh, very eerie song, um, and um, yeah, very simple drum beat, and yet um, David Tickle, I, I got to come back to him, has just done a really wonderful job in bringing Malcolm Green's, particularly the snare drum, uh, to the front of uh, of a band. Again, yes, Malcolm Green's playing in this makes the song, I think. Or, or Eddie, Eddie's playing in it is fantastic as well. But Malcolm is really the backbone of this song, and and it shows. You know, there are there are a few drummers that are fantastic to listen to just to play time. There's mm. not too many, but Malcolm Green is one of them. Hundred percent. And and that's a really that's a nice thing. Not too many, you know, not too many guys you can just listen to them keep time, and it's just beautiful just mm. there's just something and you know steve gadd's one of those guys charlie watts is one of those guys but there's not too many guys that unfortunately we have you know we can claim in this part of the world that that are a joy to hear them just keep time but mm. malcolm green is one of those guys so malcolm he was uh, the drummer for the uh, reunion shows over the last few years wasn't he yeah, I'm not 100% sure about that. Okay. I didn't go to, I didn't go to the last reunion, so I'm no. not sure. Okay. Um, all right, so anyway, uh, we're sort of nearly in the home stretch, the last couple of tracks. 
How Can I Resist Her. Um, yeah, this is yeah, this is another song which I thought was uh, it's all right musically. It's okay, not particularly one of the stronger ones, but it certainly had a uh, a lyric that um, that sort of appealed to me. I'll just read out a couple of the verses. Um, you know, Tim once again singing about the female form. Uh, She's a demon in lipstick, a beauty of nature. I'm only human and sometimes I hate you. Trembling at the knees, I can only say, yes, please. Divine delinquent, delicious and perverse. I want to touch you just once before I burst. Uh, it's a great lyric. It's a great lyric. I, I, I didn't think that you know the music was, you know, uh, particularly worthy of uh, of the lyric, but um, you know, still enough there to keep you listening. And and again, it's it's Tim Finn. He writes amazing love songs from yeah from his heart, and it's you know he, he puts his heart on his sleeve, and he's this is another example of of a Tim Finn love song, and they they're just everywhere. I think they. They followed from from this album on. They got more and more. There's, you know, when you listen to um, to Time and Tide, and then um, the following the following album. You know, the the Tim Finn love songs really start to. Um, I think there's just more of them. It mm. really starts to to pop up more and more. Mm. I, I would suggest, Michael, that um, uh, this song. Uh, I know you've gone and said he writes a lot from the heart. I would suggest that. Um, this song was probably came from another part of his anatomy, uh, but um, but uh, yeah, well, we'll have to ask Tim that if uh, we ever meet him in the street. Um, <laughs> no, go on, go on. And it reminds me of uh, I went and saw Dylan Moore and the, uh, the the Irish comedian. Oh yeah, um, Black Books. And um, he 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 was talking about you know how how men write love songs or poetry and and this is a great example of it and he you know. He went on to say how um, you know a, a man will say you know this find a, find a woman and fall in love with her and say you know I can't live unless I kiss this woman or you know get to be with this woman. He says you know it's the same way women feel about shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and and this song is just I think a classic example of that. And I, I was uh, why don't women ever write songs about falling in love with shoes? Oh, indeed, good point. Well, if if anyone's listening out there knows of a. Uh, um, song where a woman writes a, a love ode to a, a, a pair of shoes, please write in and let us know. I want to know about it. Maybe, maybe Katie Lang does. That'll, maybe. That'll get hate mail. Oh, don't, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> you're going to get me in trouble. Don't listen. Don't say that. Um, all right, so we go to the final song on the album, uh, another uh, Eddie Rayner instrumental. And uh, look, I'm sorry. I, oh, yeah, I can't listen to this. The choral seed, and that's... For for those of you who don't have the um, uh, haven't looked at the album cover, it's you know it's a pun. Coral spelt C H O R A L. The Coral C. Yeah, it, it's, it's just disco synthesizer instrumental. Um, it, it really, I listen to this and I think this belongs like as a as a B side to a single, <laughs> not not on the end of uh, of an album like True Colors, but it, it, it's filler. Yeah, but it, it's and it's. I think it's it's just a. It's, it gives me a smile, I guess, at the end of the album, where especially Tim's songs, as we spoke about, were fairly heavy going, and it's just a bit of quirkiness thrown at the end. But but I do remember reading that that Eddie Rayner had written this uh, as a soundtrack to a, a Jacques Cousteau doco that he was watching uh, on television okay. at the time. Well, so it was it was quite tongue in cheek. I think it makes sense in that context. All right, well, look, uh, Michael and I have uh, gone and done our assassination of, um, of uh, True Colours. 
so what we'll do now is uh, have another break and come back. I've got a little bit of feedback, which is always a nice thing. Uh, it means that uh, people are actually out there and listening and they take the time to write in. So um, uh, we'll just have another break, come back and uh, go through the feedback. You're listening to Love That Album. American Dream He's just a common man The American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, I'm coming to you live in a living color Speak to you, the American people podcast called Silver and Gold Daddy. And you know that the American Green, Dusty Rhodes, knows how to bring home the gold, Daddy. And just like Henry Silva sticking Barbara Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling, Silver and Gold will stick it to you. Stick it to your ears, stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy. And all points in between, they'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's caucus hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold, we talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. Morris Bishkinski in Melbourne, Michael Persh in Adelaide, and you're listening to the True Colours Split Ends edition of Love That Album. It's been a lot of fun speaking to both uh, Chris and to Michael about uh, Split Ends and you know, a little bit about Crowded House and all that falls around the peripherals of um, of uh, the Split Ends camp. I should actually ask you, Michael, have you uh, listened to um, Neil Finn's new band, The Pajama Club? No, I haven't, uh, and I uh, it's on my list of things to do. And I've got I've got Tim's new album sitting uh, on my desk as well, which is called "The View Is Worth a Climb." And I have not listened to either of them, so I'm okay. uh, I'm very keen to listen to both of them. Look, the last one I heard of Tim's was uh, I think called "The Conversation," and, and that, that was that just was gorgeous. Really, really love that album. Really lovely, very sparse. Him, just him and a piano and and a, a, a bass drum. Uh, uh, he, I think he does everything on the album. It's just, but really beautiful. It is. It's the best Tim Finn album there that has come out, in my opinion. It's magnificent. Mm. Were you a fan of Escapade, the first Tim Finn album? Um, yeah, more. I, I've listened to it more over recent years. When it first came out, I thought it was sort of a bit hit and miss poppy. But yeah, there's, you know, going back and listening to it, I, yeah, I like it more. But I still. You know, I still like, you know, I like Big Canoe and I like um, his later stuff more. Mm. But I think it's just, Escapade was an album that no one really expected after, you know, seeing him as being the original creative force behind <coughs> Split Ends and then going and doing something like Escapade, which was really very, very different. I mean, that you know, fraction, too much friction. I mean, he had like these gospel sounds going to it and Make My Day, which had a bit of a gospel-y feel to it. It was a, it was a world away from Split Ends. Mm, true, but, but but then again, Split Ends, you know, to my thinking, went a little bit in that direction. Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, well, I guess more under Neil's baton, really, than, than Tim's, but um, they, they certainly um, egged each other on and they, they definitely influenced each other. Mm, mm. Before before we go off the subject of Split Ends yeah. and through colours, mate, uh, the serious question is, what colour was the LP cover you bought? Because there was... 
there was a myriad of different choices you had. Can you, you know, remember what one you bought? Uh, yes, I've got um, purple writing and yellow background, I think. There you go. Oh, mine, mine is uh, red background with uh, with green and black. So there you uh, go. And I think there was eight from there. There, there were. I think there were there were four to start off with, and then when that proved to be so successful, they commissioned another four. Very cool. So, um, all right, look, let's uh, go through. Uh, we have a little bit of feedback. Um, actually, both bits of feedback from the same fellow, but the first one is an email, and the second one is uh, an MP3, which I'll play. But first, I'll uh, read through. The email, and it's from Eric Reanimator, who um, uh, wrote uh, wrote me back in the last program. So uh, this time he writes, Morris, thanks for reading my email. A little more info on Stan Ridgway. He was in The Wall of Voodoo for a while, and their early albums are worth a listen. His output in the 80s was sometimes overproduced, as was the case in many, many bands of that era. Duh. Uh, but there was an undercurrent of the kinds of things that Zevon and Waits were exploring. Funny, I didn't even think that in the same email I was mentioning the Screaming Trees, whose singer Mark Lanigan might be the 90s heir to the legacy of Tom Waits and Warren Zevon. Here's a new record coming out that I'm looking forward to hearing. Actually, as an, an aside, I'm uh, fairly confident that Mark Lanigan's actually touring Australia fairly shortly, so uh, keep your eyes out for that one. Uh, anyway, I know of the Screaming Tribesmen, which I've mentioned in the last show, due to their inclusion in the Do the Pop compilation which has been a local tie for me so i should mention that eric is from the states but um he has a heavy interest in uh, in australian pop um so uh yeah their inclusion in do the pop compilation which has a local tie for me radio birdman was led by one des tech who is from my hometown and took his love of the stooges and the mc5 to sydney when he went to medical school there in the 1970s and was a big part of the punk scene that grew up there. Another track that I discovered because of that compilation was Johnny and Dee Dee by the Eastern Dark. Um, uh, cheers, Eric Reanimator. Now, I have to say, um, I, I'm embarrassed. I know of the Do The Pop compilation. Um, and it was one of those CDs, oh, yeah, I should go out and buy that, and never did, but I'm, I'm going to now. Um, because um, Eric sent me an MP3 of, uh, as he mentioned, the Eastern Dark and their song Johnny and Dee Dee, obviously in reference to uh, the Ramones, uh, which I'll have more to say of in about five minutes. Um, but uh, it's an absolute corker of a song. I don't know anything else about the Eastern Dark, but they go full on to sound like um, the Ramones, but you know, sort of the Ramones in pop in uh, bubblegum mode. Uh, and it's just a great, great song. Were you familiar with the Eastern Dark, Michael? No, no, but I'm a huge Radio Birdman fan, so... Okay. I've, um, I've got to get hold of that Do The Pop compilation uh, that he mentioned. I have seen it. Um, I've got another great compilation, though, of um, uh, Power Pop from uh, the early noughties uh, called uh, The Lost Weekend, and um, that features a lot of bands... Uh, a lot of power pop bands from all around the country, but um, I think a lot of Sydney ones in particular. There's a, a guy out of Sydney who just seems to be involved with so many power pop bands. He's no one knows of him in, in Australia, but apparently in Europe he's a he, he can't walk the streets. He's a king there. I'm talking about a guy called Michael Carpenter. Have you have you heard his stuff? No, can't say, can't say I've ever heard his name. Uh, Michael Carpenter is uh, you, you've got to search him out. He's a he's a, a, a Okay, say pop genius would be maybe overdoing it, but the man 
really has a great way with a pop melody and he loves his harmonies and he loves his power pop. Um, and so I think he was fairly instrumental in, and he had a lot of tracks in the various bands he was in on this Lost Weekend compilation. So um, I have that, but I don't have Do The Pop. So that's um, that's probably next on my list to uh, go out and buy. All right, uh, what next? Okay, so Eric has also sent me an MP3 um, with uh, some suggestions of music that uh, I should be listening to. So um, Eric, take it away. Let's listen to what you have to say. Greetings, Love That Album Podcast. This is Eric Reanimator. was listening to, uh, I think it was episode three, the Steve Earle episode, and Maurice mentioned that he wasn't familiar with the band Social Distortion. So I figured I'd put together a little audio primer on the band. The songs I have selected come from the band's earliest albums to its most recent, starting off with Mommy's Little Monster, Another State of Mind, Born to Lose, Ball and Chain, I Was Wrong, Live Before You Die, California Hustle and Flow. Enjoy.
Okay, Eric, thanks very much for uh, sending us that uh, MP3, that uh, bit of feedback there, and your email. Great stuff there. Really enjoyed your um, little compilation there. Thanks so much for that. And please keep the recommendations coming. Pretty much hit close towards the end of the show. Um, I should probably do uh, a few greetings of um, uh, other podcasts that I've been listening to. I've mentioned these at the last show, but um, doesn't hurt to repeat. Uh, Paleo Cinema, Terry Frost's show out of Melbourne. Uh, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Um, Silver and Gold, that's S-I-L-V-A and Gold. Um, and one of the hosts of that show, Dr. Zong, who I did the Quadrophenia episode of Love That Album with, um, will be joining me again on the next edition of Love That Album. And for our uh, next edition, because uh, Zom hosts a film show, so it's compulsory for us to be doing a film as well as an album. So we'll be uh, talking about Rock and Roll High School, the um, uh, Alan R. Cush Roger Corman film of the late 1970s. Uh, and because the Ramones are the central subject matter of that film, we'll also be talking about their Phil Spector produced album, End of the Century. Uh, so that uh, should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking with Dr. Zom about uh, that double. So, uh, But meanwhile, if you want to uh, check him out, listen to Silver and Gold, his show that he does with uh, Piccolo. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of fun. Uh, also, um, uh, other great podcasts I've been listening to. There's a new one on the scene. You'll be interested in this, Michael, um, uh, called The List Music Podcast. Now, this is a new show, or newish. They've uh, only done about, um, uh, I think, about 11 shows so far, but uh, they do it on a weekly basis. So, uh, as opposed to, I mean, I've, I've, I think this is only show 13 for me, but I've been doing it like every two, three weeks, whereas they've been doing it every week you know, since December. And basically, these guys, um, they tackle um, a different musical subject every week, and then they go through their top five of that subject. So they've beaten us to the, uh, they've beaten us to the punch mark, because last week's show, they talked about their top five drummers of all time. So there's four of them. They each went through their top five, and they got a, a special guest, um, a guy called Anthony Buso, who I haven't heard of before, but um, uh, they, they went through their top five. Uh, so between the five of them, each going through their top five is about a two-hour show. But um, <laughs> they had a lot of good choices. Um, some guys who I didn't particularly care for, the music that they covered, but uh, great drummers nevertheless. But I was really interested in um, Anthony Buso's top pick, which was Liberty DeVito. Uh, from uh, Billy Joel's band and I don't want to give away too much because we're going to be doing our own show of uh, top five drummers soon I think on um, Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide Interesting, yeah, yeah, looking forward to that it's the, uh, I reckon end of March we're coming up to mm. show 300 so I thought that might be a bit of fun well, but uh, I've tried to I've tried to note down what I, and I, it's a really hard thing to, to uh, for me to do, my top mm. five it's very mm. hard um, Yeah, look, the uh, uh, without wanting to give too much away, because we're gonna, you know, still gonna compile my list, but I can, I think I can confidently say that uh, uh, Liberty DeVito is going to be somewhere in my top. I don't know. You haven't set a limit whether it's going to be top five, top ten, or just as many as I want. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, certainly um, he'll be somewhere in there. Um, what else? Sound opinions. 
um, great show out of uh, the US, which is really a radio show, but they do uh, put it up available as a podcast as well. And of course, um, your own show, Michael, uh, sitting in a bar in Adelaide. So who have you got coming up this week? Oh, who's coming up this week? Good question. Um, I think a guy by the name of Ken Savage is my guest this week, who's who's based in Paris. I, I spoke to him about it. He's he's a he's a an American producer who's done a lot of um, sort of hair metal in the eighties, but he's got a, a new project called um, the Resurgence of Rock, which is sort of along the lines of what Alan Parsons did, which was. Um, Ken's written all the lyrics. He's got another another guy from uh, from the states uh, by the name of Austin Shell, who was a well known producer to to produce it, and got all these singers in to do these tunes. The likes of um, some great sort of names from the eighties, but a lot that, that aren't really well known from Australia. The, mm. the probably the, the most well known is a guy by the name of Paul Shortino, okay. who uh, who I remember as. Um, in uh, in Spinal Tap, and I can't remember his character. Off the top <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, so we've got some interesting things coming up. Fantastic. Um, actually, sorry, one more podcast I should uh, definitely make mention of. Um, as, as you can guess from uh, my list of podcasts, I do like listening to uh, my film-related podcasts. And um, uh, so a, a newish one that's um, uh, come on the scene is called Mondo Film Podcast. Now, there's a couple of Mondo film related name podcast there's also mondo movies which is also an excellent podcast but i want to give particular uh shout out to uh mondo film podcast uh mondo justin um he for a number of years i think he um, did a show called the projection booth and um they did some really fantastic shows always pick a, a film that they dissect into pieces and they they pulled a, a rather elaborate uh, april fool's joke uh, last year, which myself and I'm sure a lot of other listeners fell for, but there's um, uh, a film that Jerry Lewis did in the early 70s called The Day the Clown Cried, and it's never seen the light of day, um, uh, and um, it, it's about you know, supposedly about a, a clown who ends up in a concentration camp uh, during you know, during the, the Holocaust, and you know, pretty much I guess in a similar fashion to um, Life Is Beautiful, the Robert Benini film. But um, this film, for whatever reason it was, never saw the light of day and um, it ended up in a, in a vault. So uh, the guys at the projection booth made out like uh, they'd actually discovered where it was. And one of them on his holiday had been to Spain and been to this university where they had an archive. And that's where the film was located. And provided he didn't take it out, he actually got to watch the film and spoke about it in some depth and... I thought, wow, this sounds great, jeez, I hope this comes out. And then at the end, they pretty much sort of gave a, well, I hope you've enjoyed it, and happy April Fool's Day, guys. And they thought, oh, I've been duped. Um, so, uh, but uh, Mondo Justin now has uh, this new show called the Mondo Film Podcast. And strangely enough, so the theme of his show nowadays is um, he'll do about four or five shows recorded in advance per month, and they'll focus on the work of one person thus far it's been like actors but it could be you know in the future directors or auteurs and all the shows that are coming out in march will all be jerry lewis um so no day the clan cried i don't think we can be fooled twice justin but um but uh, yeah i'm a big jerry lewis fan in particular the nutty professor and i think that's going to be the first show that he uh, releases to the world in uh, march from the uh, the lewis um podcast so um 
Uh, yeah, you can find him at mondofilmpodcast.com. Uh, give it a listen. He really, really well put together. Very entertaining show. So I think that's all the uh, salutations and uh, and uh, tip-offs that uh, I can give. Anything else that you've got on, on your mind there, Michael? Anything else that you want to mention? No, no, that's, uh, that's I think, me done, mate. It's been been a pleasure again. It's good, uh, as I said last time we did this, great fun to dissect uh, an album from our past and uh, and relive some of it again. It's well, fun. we're going to have to um, speak to each other again over uh, over email or Facebook or, dare I say, at work. We work for the same company, folks. Uh, and uh, uh, work out what our next podcast is going to be. Well, we did we did stumble across Broderick Smith at some times. So. Oh, right, done. That's the one. Broderick Smith's big combo. Um, be interesting to see how many Australians remember that. Certainly, I'm not sure that many uh, Americans would be aware of uh, Broderick Smith and his legacy. But um, yeah, certainly that's a fantastic album, and uh, Broderick Smith is, a, um, I, I think, really an underappreciated uh, performer in this country nowadays. But um, yeah, I think yep. That, okay, that'll be our next. Our next discussion, Broderick Smith's Big Combo. Good one. So I, I look forward to that. I Yeah, totally agree. He's a, a, a magnificent singer indeed. Mm. All right. Okay. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Love That Podcast. Uh, and my many thanks to Michael for joining me this time around. And uh, we'll see you back in a couple of weeks where uh, Dr. Zom and I will do our Ramones themed show. Uh, so till then, watch a whole lot of movies, listen to a whole lot of albums, read a whole lot of books and just generally enjoy your life. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.